This is episode number 10, Double Digits Baby, coming to you live and direct from Oaktown, California. And we are so happy and grateful for all of you tuning in. episode 10 and uh yeah stoked to be back episode 10 takes us back to the great city of new orleans Uh, we have uh the amazing photographer and addiction counselor recovery professional mr jeffrey dupuy somebody that i go way back with and uh worked with back in the jam bass days and has been a peer and a friend and inspiration in the music industry and also in his work in uh, recovery. He has a business uh, that he leads in New Orleans that he talks about in the interview. And uh, while we're there, we also uh, check in with my man J.A., who's been on the podcast a couple times already, um, where we have a conversation with J.A. about the Rolling Stones coming to New Orleans for Jazz Fest and the historical significance of the 50th anniversary of Jazz Fest and all the uh, quote-unquote controversy that's been attached to some of the breaking of traditions and changes that have been made uh, for the Stones hitting Jazz Fest on May 2nd. A little bit about some of the rumors that are floating about what might go down after hours. And yeah, we just kind of uh, going back to the Crescent City of New Orleans for episode 10. Obviously, we had Katrina Breeze on. We also had uh, Derek Smoker. So there's been a heavy uh, load of New Orleans content and there will continue to be. We had Weedy Brema. That was a New Orleans-centric episode. So yeah. It's my home away from home. It's the musical Mecca. It is a wonderful and wondrous culture. So we will continue to return to New Orleans time and time again. There's another theme present on this particular episode of the Up for Life podcast. And kind of ties in everything uh, regarding the thanks that I usually give at the beginning of the episode. And the theme of the episode and... I've always said that the Up for Life podcast has uh, elements of inspiration and uh, overcoming adversity and, you know, living through some shit and, you know, coming out the other side to tell the tale. And uh, on that note, I want to say thank you um, and shout out to Dopey Podcast. Dopey Podcast is a podcast about drugs addiction recovery and dumb shit 
Uh, I found it some time ago when I was looking for uh, information podcast, informational podcasts regarding Kratom. And uh, I found Dopey because of the nature of the podcast regarding addiction and opiates and so forth. And uh, when I was working on the ganja farm long hours just with uh, doing labor or at the trim table, whatever, uh, working in the greenhouse, I would listen to Dopey pretty religiously, along with many other podcasts, and that's a big part of why I'm talking to you today. Um, the, the foundation of Dopey in its early days was a place for uh, these two cats, Dave and Chris, to uh, these recovering addicts would go there with some silly, ridiculous, uh, laughing at your depravity war stories of uh, you know, when they were formerly in the throes of addiction and they, you know, had other guests and contributors come in and it was kind of dark and uh, funny, but also frightening. But it connected with me in some way because, uh, you know, I myself have uh, struggled with addiction and it spoke to me and uh, I continue to go back to it and listen to it frequently while I worked on the farm. Um, you know, as I said, it was hosted by Dave and Chris, and you kind of got to know those guys as the podcast hosts, like you do anyone that you listen to on a regular basis. And uh, now it's only hosted by Dave, uh, because after on the, over the summer, uh, after nearly five years of sobriety, a master's degree, a fiance, working in a sober house, and being really seemingly as ad- active in recovery culture as anyone could be, uh, Chris seemed to think he could go out and he shot speedballs in a fentanyl world. And he's no longer here. He did not live to tell the tale. And dopey listeners uh, like myself and thousands of others around the world lived this reality in real time, week to week in the podcast. Um, so, yeah, Dave delivered the news one day. It was surreal, to be honest with you. It was crazy. Um, and... Yeah, I was already, you know, emotionally connected to these fellas and the stories uh, of the different folks that would come on the show. And this was a, you know, no pun intended, very sobering reality, Chris's death. And uh, Dave actually lost a couple of friends in that time, including another frequent guest and best buddy, fellow named Todd, who kind of knew of peripherally in the fish community. Um... Nonetheless, uh, I started to realize that while I was listening to Dopey, A, I really wanted to have my own podcast, um, but also felt like called to have some kind of purpose uh, in the fight against addiction and the uh, mass opiate problem that's really engulfed uh, our country. But yeah, it was listening to Dopey that finally inspired me to create my own podcast, um, it's because, you know, it, it was and remains amateur hour with Dave and, and Dopey and always was with Dave and Chris. Um, yet here I was devoting all this time to this podcast and it spoke to me in such a profound way. And even though it was such a basic recording situation um, and they didn't have a whole lot of know-how, but I realized, uh, like Dopey, if I could come up with good content, keep people engaged, you know, the learning curve of producing a podcast you know, I'd get through it, and if I had the goods and had the content, then, you know, it would fall into place. Um, 
but as I stated, Dopey also made me realize I have a purpose in this fight out there, something that extends beyond merely my own battle. Uh, This podcast will, and by this podcast I mean my podcast, the Upful Life podcast, will be a forum and a foundation for solutions-based recovery and discussion and sharing and just a safe place for people who are struggling. Um, either struggling themselves or lost a loved one or are currently watching somebody destroy themselves. Um, I want them to be able to come here as a listener. Whenever appropriate, I would like for the guests to feel like they can discuss that sort of thing um, and offer some people a hopeful message and inspirational uh, story. We already had that happen with Mikey Karuba in episode one, who talked about his own battles with addiction and steps he's taken to uh, make changes in his life. Uh, Scotty Zwang talked less about addiction, but just about uh, sobriety and uh, making choices that didn't involve uh, inebriation. And uh, I'm sure there was more on the way. Obviously, today's episode with Jeffrey Dupuy... um, tackles that for the better part of the second half of the episode um it's funny because i I posted about jeffrey a few times in the dopey podcast group on social media and somebody popped up in there another sober guy and podcast host who immediately said that jeffrey had saved his life I knew I was on to something with the Jeffrey interview, and I also realized that there is a vibrant and uh, very supportive and empowering community out there um, in sort of the recovery sober podcast world. So we're going to be able to do that. Uh, we're going to be able to talk about that kind of stuff here. We won't force it because, uh, you know, this is a music and music culture podcast first but it's also about inspiration and overcoming adversity and uh you know want it to all come out and happen organically but i want you know people to know that if they're living the reality of addiction be it themselves or people close to them or watching their heroes um, i would like to be able to host conversations that address this scourge uh scourge uh, that's taking too many people from us time and time again and and because of this purpose i want to send a deep bow and a thank you back to dopey podcast for all that you do and dave and all that you are dopey nation Uh, dave you are are a very inspiring human somebody i identify with uh in ways that are alarming and hilarious and troubling and uh serendipitous and so much else so hopefully some of the few folks that listen to the Up for Life podcast might get curious and check out the Dopey podcast. And maybe some of the Dopey folks that get wind of this uh, deep bow to Dopey and Dave might be inclined to check out the Up for Life podcast. And definitely check out Jeffrey Dupuy, whose interview today will be, uh, I guess, the second in a series here that where we will talk about uh, addiction and how it is a fact of life and a part of life and how people are working to um, overcome because uh, like they say we do recover um, so before we go into Jeffrey's interview I just want to acknowledge that this issue was obviously close to my heart not only have I lost a few heroes and a few friends to addiction 
I myself have battled that demon on and off and on for roughly a dozen years oxycontin ruined me no two ways about it full-fledged addiction people might remember me then or maybe not but it was uh, dark dark times along with that came many of the dark alleys and mortifying situations that accompany this sort of downward spiral two steps forward three steps back um, but as I speak to you today, having lived through other traumas in the interim, I'm proud to say I've not used any of those type of drugs in a few years. Um, now, I'm not going to misrepresent. I, I do not get it twisted. I am not in recovery. I am not sober. Um, but I enjoy cannabis regularly, respectfully partake in psychedelics in extremely special occasions, and drink socially and sporadically. I'm also a big proponent of and continue to employ Kratom uh, to combat the demon of addiction. It's something that we talk about a little bit in the podcast and I'll continue to talk about, or excuse me, in Jeffrey's interview and I'll continue to talk about on the podcast. Um, but yeah, that's reality of my life and something that I have to carry with me and still making amends for things that happened in those days as well. And uh, still, you know, fighting the battle on a lot of other levels and with friends and just people I don't even know that uh, communicated with online or talked to um, wherever. There's just a lot of folks out there directly affected by addiction and you know we're going to talk about a lot of cool shit on this podcast we do music and hilarious times and epic art and life experiences but you know we gotta go warts and all sometimes so i'm acknowledging my own place and space in this prism um and not only just going to work to keep myself safe and abstinent from those behaviors, but I'm going to be proactive in helping others. So if you want to talk about this privately, feel free to email me at b.gets at upfullife.com. Find me on social media um, or just keep listening to this podcast or check out Dopey Podcast or any of the myriad of other podcasts in that realm if you are seeking uh, guidance, assistance, company, solidarity, safety in numbers. Because it's time that we remove the scarlet letter of shame from addiction and realize that it's each and every one of us or someone we love or admire or respect or work for, etc., I'm putting my money and my microphone where my mouth is. I'm taking the first step. I'm openly talking about my own struggle. As did Mikey Karuba, as does Jeffrey later in this interview. Maybe one day we'll be have lucky to have Dave from Dopey on the podcast. I look forward to this being an outlet for anybody affected. Guests on the podcast, listeners, whoever. Because we do recover.
And I'm your host, B. Getz, and we're coming to you live and direct from New Orleans, Louisiana. New Orleans, Louisiana. And I'm here with none other than Jeffrey Dupuy, uh, music photographer uh, I've known for a long time, and fantastic individual, human being, human spirit, and also uh, addiction counselor here in New Orleans. Yeah. So welcome to the show. Thanks, Brian. I'm happy to be here. And we're certainly happy to have you. And uh, we got a lot to cover. And I know that, you know, your time is valuable, so I'm really grateful that, you know, you made the time and I'm going to do my best not to dig too many rabbit holes because it's easy <laughs> in, in our world, in our culture. Sure, man. And, and try to steer this ship to, you know, where the listeners stay engaged and uh, we can really hit on some topics that are of great importance to both of us and uh, value to the community. Awesome. Let's do it. Yeah. So... Uh, we're sitting here in New Orleans, and uh, I've been coming to New Orleans for many years, and I know you from here, but also elsewhere, uh, Swanee, among other places that yeah. uh, we've you know known each other and worked together. Uh, where are you originally from? Uh, originally, I'm from Lafayette. I um, I grew up there, uh, and uh, graduated from high school there, and then I went to LSU three times, <laughs> and uh, I wound up back in New Orleans about uh, 11 years ago. Um, I was hired to uh, open up a drug treatment program here, and uh, so I jumped at the chance. Right on. Yeah, yeah. So you were, um, you know, involved in music photography and photography in general before that happened, and you moved here. Yeah, so absolutely. So let's maybe, you know, start start our chat with, you know, that world. So, All right. Um, was it music or photography that first captured your, your spirit? It was music first. Okay. It was music first. I grew up in a household where uh, my grandfather was a music teacher before he, uh, and a musician before he went into politics. Um, and so we were all encouraged to study piano and voice. Uh, and then if we wanted to do something else, we could. And when I was about 11 years old, uh, I went out for the Pee Wee football team and I made it two practices before I went home and told my mom, this is definitely not for me, uh, I want to get a guitar. And, uh, you know, they were real supportive of it. So I got a guitar and uh, started playing at, you know, like 12. And, uh, you know, that became kind of the path for me. You know, I played in the jazz band in high school, uh, and then I played in rock and roll bands in college, and uh, a lot of hippie stuff, a lot of, like, Grateful Dead-influenced uh, Almond Brothers. Um, 
you know, a lot of, you know, hippie party music. And uh, that's my joke is that that's how I drank my way through college. Uh, <laughs> but it's kind of true, you know. Um, I What's love, the school in Lafayette? Uh, so LSU was where I went to school. Oh, Baton Rouge. Yeah, in Baton Rouge. Yeah. Okay. Right and, on. And uh, so, yeah, so I played guitar and I still play. Um, but, it, but first it was music. And then around 2000, so I, I got sober in 2000. Um, my joke is that the judge and my mom thought it'd be a good idea, uh, and it's pretty much true, you know. I bet um, they did. Yeah, I, I was a I was a mess, and uh, best thing that ever happened to me. Um, but my first job out of rehab was working for the Louisiana Film Commission, and as part of that job, I had to go out and take location photographs. Um, so basically, I showed up at work, and they were like, "Here's a camera. There's film in the icebox." Um, go learn how to take pictures. And uh, that was my introduction to photography. Um, and so uh, I started bringing a camera to shows and taking pictures of bands, because um, I was still playing. Uh, but after I got sober, like the only thing to do after soundcheck is to shoot pool and to drink. And I'm not really good at either of those. <laughs> and, uh, and so like I started bringing cameras and taking pictures. And as the years progressed, like, uh, None of the Nevilles have ever called me because they need a guitar player. So I'll just put it that way. Like the, the call for photography was more and more, uh, and the call for, call for guitar player wasn't uh, nearly as often. So, you know, I kind of chose that path, and uh, it been doing it ever since. And it's, it's great, man. It keeps me in the rock and roll circus. Um, I still get to be in the craziness, and uh, I, I, I love it. Yeah, yeah. Well, it shows. I mean, yeah. I mean, your work and just hanging out with you at various music events and so forth. So I'm curious, you came up a guitarist, who was maybe the guy that you uh, wanted to emulate or, or, or loved the most at, in your you know, halcyon days? Sure, man. So like um, early on, like uh, Jimmy Page, definitely a huge influence. Um, David Gilmore, that tone, sure. just amazing. Uh, Jerry Garcia, you know, pretty much my senior year in high school, uh, the physics teacher turned me on to the dead. And um, uh, you know, we play, so uh, just for, for, for fun, you right know, on. no stress, not trying to make original music, just like college town hippie band. Uh, it was good times. That's awesome. Yeah. And I never knew that about you. Yeah. And I've known you for a minute. Yep. Right on. So you said that uh, you knew you realized pretty quick that, uh, that you wouldn't, your name wasn't going to be in lights for the guitar playing, but that you had a, a knack for taking pictures and, yeah. and going to shows. So uh, how did you go from, uh, say, novice or hobby, how did you uh, really step into photography as an art form, and, and a, in essence, your profession? Sure. Um, I mean, really, I just kept practicing. You know, it was, it was pretty much just that. that um, so when I started, uh, digital photography was just on the cusp. Uh, so it was still mostly film stuff. Um, so there was still a barrier to access. Um, not everybody could just go take pictures. Um, and so I would ask my friends uh, who were in bands, hey, can I come take pictures of your band? And they get all excited because it's normally stuff they would have had to have paid for right. um, at that point. Um, and, you know, so my friends kept getting bigger and bigger musicians. And, you know, Tipitina's was really kind to me um, that through uh, George Porter Jr., um, I met all the folks at TIPS 
Um, and they were like, look, man, if you want to come take, take pictures and give us some, you're welcome to come anytime you want. Wow, how um, cool is that? Yeah, just let us know when you want to come and we'll check it out with a band. And so like that started happening about the same time as Jam Bass right. started happening. Um, and an Honest Tune magazine right. was going on. Um, and so I just kind of fell into it, you know. I, uh, I started doing some writing for both of those publications. Right. Um, and, um, you know, that's kind of how I stepped into it. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, similar, you know. Minus the photography, but that was my path in as well, as you know, through Jam Bass. Yeah. And uh, how I first, you know, saw your byline, saw your work, you know, knew who you were long before we met. Yeah, totally. So, uh, for the listeners, this is right around 2000, 2001. I mean, I came into Jam yeah. Bass in ni- late 99. And same thing, I was just going to shows and I wanted to write about them. And Jam Bass became a thing. And they actually reached out to me, I think, through the fish.net reviews nice. that I've been posting. And knew I was in Burlington, and you know the rest is history. Um, how did you basically go from, uh, like you said, like jam bass and honest tune? You started writing. Um, how did you go into the writing side of it, the journalism side? So um, I was a, a literature major as an undergrad, and so the you know writing is what I had that craft I kind of honed. Came naturally. To yeah, you. yeah. I've always been pretty good with words. Um, and so uh, it was just taking those skills and um, uh, applying it to music. Um, How did they find you? Uh, I think I reached out to them. Okay. I think I reached out to them, yeah. Um, so um, Tom Speed, yeah, who, who was right. the editor and publisher of An Honest Tune magazine. Also big, contributed to Jam Bass from time to time. Yep. A big spreadhead. Um, and I knew him just from the scene down here. Uh, and so there was nobody else in New Orleans that was doing like the jam bands stuff. Right. Um, and so it was a pretty easy sell of going, hey, like I'm, let me cover the New Orleans stuff. Let me cover the the, the New Orleans culture stuff. Um, and you know, big thanks to those guys. I mean, at the time it was uh, it was Tom Speed over at Hannah's Tune, it was Scotty B over at Jam Bass. Um, it was uh, uh, at that time. It was it was Aaron Case Caseman. Caseman, yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. shit. Yeah. Oh, excuse me. Free Scotty B. Free Scotty B. Yeah. Not to correct you. No, thank you. I needed that because yeah. I don't want to short him. Right. Um, at all, because yeah, it was Caseman. Yeah. Um, and you had to do your own coding back then. You sure did. <laughs> yeah, forced us to learn HTML. That's right. Yeah. If you wanted to be a writer, you had to learn to yeah. write code. Yeah. Um, and it was the folks at Relics, you know, yeah. that was the next step, um, it was those guys. Right on. And um, everybody was welcoming, everybody was like really supportive, you yeah. know. I want to probe that just a little bit too, sure. um, because, you know, we're both lucky that, you know, in our own ways that we have access and relationships and stuff, and it really all stems from what we're talking about right now, which is the dawn of the sort of internet in your home. Yeah. Not quite in your lap or in your pocket yet, but in your home, the uh, you know we remember whether it was you had to wait for tapes, you know B and P's or C, you know CDRs, whatever. Yeah. Recording tapes yeah. or getting dead bass or um, the Donnie X Vice from yeah. Fish or even uh, the sort of zines on lot like the Golden Road or yeah. uh, Dupree's Diamond News, and then the internet happens and all of a sudden you can the set list. Maybe back then it wasn't quite real time, but same night yeah. somebody was putting it up in between sets. Music was available right away, and with that came the ability for people like you and I to broadcast our thoughts and your images. Yeah, absolutely. Um, 
to, you know, innumerable exponential like-minded, you know, kindred souls, if you will. Yeah. And there is, and was, and remains an innate power in that. And, you know, I humbly have, like, developed my own sort of readership and yeah. um, voice. And I like to think you certainly had when you were writing your thing and continue to have, um, you know, your own vibe as we could look around on the wall, all the stuff that you shoot. Yeah. Um, you know, how did you sort of navigate that in terms of not so much where you went and what you did, but you know, how did you approach like your thoughts and reviews um, you know, to the people? Was it an art form? Was it poetry? Were you a reporter? I mean, because you know, really we sort of kicked down that door. I, I right. said that humbly too, but we were the first guys where people were at the work, at their cubicle, and they missed the show and sure. they hear sure. it from us. I mean, really, I think it, it started as um, uh, just an enthusiast, just a fan. Yeah. You know, um, over the years, I've tried to uh, to stick to shooting and writing about stuff that I really enjoy. You know, um, I, I chose. I would I would hate to write a bad review. You right. know. Um, yeah. Just because it's not my taste. Right. You know, um, so I'd rather stick to the stuff that I really dig. Um, and as far as shooting goes, like, I can tell. I can tell if, you know, if I'm shooting a festival, I can tell the difference in my shots between the bands that I really like and the bands that I'm like, eh, not my thing. Um, like, yeah, I get, I get more excited about the bands that I really dig. Yeah. Um, and so back to answer your question, I think I approached it as just like a kid in a candy store who was, I'm so effing lucky to be able to do this thing. Like that, this blows my mind. Yeah. That um, I mean, to see my my images in print, um, that was so cool the first time. Especially in relics. Yeah. As like a childhood deadhead and all that. Yeah, I mean, like I. Wow, I'm in relics. I used to get. I mean, I still do. But yeah. you know, I mean, relics would show up uh, at my house, and I could read all this cool stuff. And then at one, you know, one day I'm like, dude, that's my picture. Yeah. You know. Um, same thing with Honest Tune uh, when it was in sure. print. You know. Yeah. Um, the, the, journal, the, the level of journalism in an honest tune was always very strong, even back then. Yeah, you know? it was. It was. I think Tom approached it, because he's an academic. Yeah. Um, he wanted it to be kind of like the, uh, uh, um, the Delta Review. That was the, the name of the, the journalistic magazine uh, coming out of Oxford, mm. where he teaches. Uh, he wanted the level of uh, uh, writing to be on par with scholastic uh, uh, articles, you know? know, yeah, um, and I think he did a really good job at it. Yeah, I would say so, I mean, I'm not familiar with that particular periodical from Oxford, but just, I remember being impressed with an honest tune yeah. and always um, just noticed that there was a, not knocking jam bass or jam bands or any of those. No, 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 no. Um, just that an honest tune was always very strong. It was, and, and I think the fact that it was uh, quarterly or semi-quarterly uh, meant that it was, they were doing more... Quality control. And, and, yeah, and doing more in-depth pieces, not... Because just by nature of the publication days, right. they weren't doing, like, here's what happened last night. Right. Um, long so form Long-form writing, yeah. Yeah, it was sure. great stuff. Yes, it yeah. was tremendous. And back at that time, too, I'm thinking about it, Rolling Stone had long-form pieces in it still. Sure did. That's when people like Hunter Thompson yeah. were, uh, were still writing. Sure. And uh, you'd have these in-depth articles. That's why I'm here. I 
Yeah. And I, I got a subscription for my bar mitzvah at 13. Nice. And reading those articles is, is really why I'm doing what I'm doing. And yeah. there's Hunter S., of course, but Gail Gilmore, David Fricke. I mean, there's, there's the in-house cats at Rolling Stone in the glory days. Yeah. You know, which are even before my time, but even up through the late 90s. Um, and there continues to be some decent journalism there. It's just not, you're not guaranteed every issue to have that long-form thing that really rocks you. Right. You know. Um, so we talk about that era that I like to call the Halcyon era of when the, the internet got into houses and people like you and I. The AOL era? Yeah. <laughs> Dial-up era, right. And uh, we were talking about, you know, off-air, we were talking about the, the giants of photography uh, that remain so, like a Jay Blakesburg who came up in the dead community, but now you see him all over the scene. Right. And a Danny Clinch who we were talking about earlier, just an amazing guy, musician, photographer, artist. He's making a film about Shannon Hoon, which I'll get to. Nice. Um, but there's another sort of generation of cats that pop through with you that are sort of your peers. Um, a Josh Timmermans, Dino Perucci, Mark Millman in New York, Bob Adamick, Dave Van, um, Rex Thompson. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of guys that, you know, you're sort of your brothers in arms. And it's pretty Absolutely. amazing to see what everybody has uh, built for themselves. Yeah. And you were talking a, a moment ago, and I wanted to sag into this about enthusiasm and just like, wait, I can show up and, and I can shoot these legends and, and I can get into the show. And then there comes a point in time where the free ticket doesn't pay the rent. The free ticket, right. while we're grateful and I'm always thankful when someone's like, hey, you would come cover the show, we'll put you on the list. Right. You know, that never gets old. Right. But um, you have to make a living. So all the guys that I mentioned, you know, have successfully transitioned into, you know, the professional world of photography and, you know, do mighty well for themselves. Yeah. Um, what would you say to the younger generation of photographers, like the people that we're going to see at Halloween next week? Right. Um, and just the cats that are out in the clubs now that are still on that, hey, I can come to the show tip. Right. You know, right, right. what kind of advice or, or sort of a wisdom or sage sort of gems would you drop to... to uh, inspire them or, or you know, motivate them to to become professionals right or would you advise against it <laughs> <laughs> I mean I think I'm kind of the cynic of the group uh, where well, I would let's hear that where I would say keep your day job right you know um, I, um, I and I say that those people that you're talking about you know Josh Kimmerman uh, Rex Thompson Bob uh, Dave Van I mean those are guys they bust their asses to do this stuff you know um, Josh in particular has been somebody I've been friends with and have watched him build a career out of doing this um, and that dude works much harder than I want to <laughs> I've seen he does man he yeah. does I mean he's out he's catching a plane before the sun comes up and he's editing well into the night mm -hmm. um, and uh, God bless him you know um, I, I'm well trained at what I do for a day job, you know, I, um, uh, I always kept photography as an art form for me, you know, I've tried the hustle and I'm not cut out for it. Um, I can't tell you how many weddings and bar mitzvahs I've shot where my thought process was like, I hate this, mm -hmm. you know. Um, yeah. I'm happy to capture people's wonderful moments, but this isn't why I'm doing it. Yeah, you know. And so I'm lucky in the sense to be in a position where 
I decided personally to reel it back in to make keep this as your art. Yeah. Keep, passion. Keep this as your passion, not as your your commercial right. uh, exploits. Um, and so for me, that's the deal. Um, and it's hard to make a living being an artist. Yeah. Period. Period. Yeah. Especially um, in this era. Yeah. Absolutely. And so. Um, Interesting that you call it an artist. I mean, lots of people like to say what we do is art. Yeah. Um, but it's not quite the same as it's hard to make it as a musician. It might be equally hard, but that's a different world, and this is a different world. And it's important, I think, that you make the distinction about um, keeping it, you know, keeping your day job, as you put it. Yeah. Um, because it's easy to get jaded in that sort of real world aspect of yeah. like how much am I getting paid and is there a per diem and blah, 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 blah. Yeah. And, and then you're supposed to bring that enthusiasm, that childlike glee that we're talking about, but you're also in that world of crunching numbers and it's, it's you know, so I personally, you know, uh, it was a different version of the day job. For a long time it was selling furniture, I worked for State Farm, then as you know, I was in the cannabis thing for a while, so that ended badly. Um, but now I am, really making an earnest, authentic effort to be a working journalist. Nice. You know, I still go up and work on the farms and stuff like labor. Sure. But I'm, I'm not involved in that world in that capacity anymore. I'm wholly, you know, legit and in the light. No, you know, and, right. and I'm proud to say that's why I'm talking about it on the podcast. But, uh, you know, it's been a struggle and it will continue to be. And I'm lucky I have great relationships with people. And uh, hopefully that, you know, more to come. And for listeners out there, I am, you know, open to assignments and ideas of how you know I can serve artists all over the place as I'm sure you are too yeah. and I know you get contacted by artists regularly for projects directly for them outside of the scope of media sure. and you know it's important I think um, to, to just be conscious of that because I don't ever want to get to the point where I'm jaded about what I do because so much about my own personal craft is rooted in enthusiasm yeah. So to lose that would be crippling. And, uh, you know, that's a work in progress. Like, I'll be talk to you at Jazz Fest next time I come to town. We'll see how I'm doing. Am I paying my rent? Am I making an amazing partner who's very understanding and very supportive and also, you know, does well for herself. So sure. that's a blessing as well. And not everyone has that luxury. Sure. So thank you for just shooting people straight. Absolutely. Keeping your day job thing. And, you know, and, you know, and I, I, mean, I can tell you for me, it's just my personal journey. Um, but in the past couple of years, I have stepped back a little bit from shooting. Um, I noticed. And, and more into enjoying, yeah. you know. Being present. Yeah. Yeah. Just, you know, I mean, the whole reason I got in, into this was because I'm a fan. Because, yeah. like, I, I, love, I love the music. Mm-hmm. And uh, it got to a point where it felt like the camera sometimes was getting in between me and the band uh whereas before it really felt it was connecting me sure um and so you know part of my personal process is putting it down and re-engaging as a fan and just being there and being in it yeah yeah um and it's it's great you know um but don't get me wrong i still go out and i shoot yeah um but it's not every single time forefront yeah um you know like I haven't shot fish for, I think it was two summers ago was the last time I shot fish. Right um, And people are like, why aren't you shooting the show? And I'm like, because I want to enjoy the show. Right. You know, because I want to yeah. just sit here and dig it. And because I've got great pictures of the band, you yeah. know. 
Um, and they have a great photo team. Yeah. I Renee mean, Renee fantastic. kills it. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, my place is, is to be a fan and, and to uh, uh, to just you know enjoy it, and be present. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. I, I I have the luxury of I I get both. I can be present at the show, yeah. and then my work is after the fact. So the key is just to keep it together enough, keep some notes, whatever I got to do so that I can yeah. revisit it and regurgitate it. And a lot of it is looking at the videos and photos that you guys do that sort of triggers the memories that sure. enables me to access the, you know, whatever it was that I want to tell the story. So thank you for that. Yeah, I mean, you know, we, of course, you're welcome. Yeah, well, no, it's, a, it's a symbiotic and mutual totally. respect and relationship. And, you know, I certainly couldn't have had the, you know, the enjoyment and success through the work if I didn't have awesome partners for visual art content, yeah. photography, video, so forth. So Totally. So cool, man. I really wanted to uh, to talk to you about that to start. And maybe like, well, since we're here in New Orleans, and we in a beautiful afternoon, as we mentioned, and the front door is wide open up here uptown. Um, I've been coming to New Orleans. Uh, this is uh, since 2018, so it's 99. September of 99, I came for fish. Yeah. So I'm going to say 9.30.99, if I'm not mistaken. At the UNO. Yes. When they had the hawk fly yeah. around inside. Inside, And they right. opened with the stones. Yeah. Uh, Sweet, uh, Virginia. Sweet Virginia. Correct. Yeah. Yeah, so that was my virgin mission to New Orleans. And then, uh, you know, um, one of the you know seismic events of my life was my first jazz fest in 2000. Yeah. And what got me here was Oysterhead. I was going to college in Vermont at sure. the time. I had just started with jam bass not long ago in early, late 99. Um, and uh, I saw the show booked, and I was, you know, it was different back then. It wasn't. We didn't just hop on planes and go places. I did once for Fish '98 in uh, Vegas for the Velvet Underground Halloween. But other than that, I was a drove on tour. Yeah. And, yeah. Oh, it was in the middle of the semester, towards the end of the semester, as I recall. You know. And long story short, I came to Jazz Fest in 2000 because of Oysterhead. Okay. And did some crazy like uh, B and P trade with the CDs plus cash for the ticket and got it in Vermont and came down and you know this past year was my 16th Jazz Fest out of 19. Nice. You know? um, ironically as we'll get to the, the years I missed twice were because my addiction problems precluded me from prioritizing it and then I you know, spent a year in trouble yeah. and I uh, was unable to attend but other than those three years anytime I've been able to. I've been here, and this is my mom's 10th year out of 11. Awesome. And this year, my partner, Alicia, joined us. And it's just an amazing place to come repeatedly. And I've really enjoyed this visit, not during Jazz Fest, and we'll continue to for the next couple of days. Yeah. Uh, because things have slowed down a little bit, the wedding notwithstanding. And I've been able to really, you know, kind of see the city as it is yeah. and not during Fest. So I wanted to take a moment here because you are such a lifeline to the jam community through the work that you do to New Orleans, to people like us who love this place, so it's our home away from home. And we have people like you, valued members of the community, shooting, telling stories, or just connecting people. You're always like a good friend to have during fest, <laughs> you know? And uh, I just wanted to talk a little bit about uh, your own reflections, your own, uh, you know, maybe... A love letter to the city like anything you want to say about this place and your place in it sure sure um i love new orleans i love new orleans um it's always felt like a spiritual home 
my grandparents were from here, so when I was growing up, um, they lived in Lafayette. They raised their kids in Lafayette, but when I was growing up, we'd come down and see like my great grandmother. Um, and this place always had a vibe to it. Um, and the understatement of the century that this place has a vibe to it. <laughs> yeah, right, <laughs> right, 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 totally. Um, it, I don't know. It always felt I was always like intrigued by it. It was like there's something going on here, and I um, I went in, I went in, and um, so when I was in college, my mom kept an apartment down in the French Quarter because she worked down here a lot, and so uh, if my band wasn't playing, a lot of times we'd come and hang out down here and go see bands. Um, so when I'm like 17, 18 years old, I'm coming down. I'm going to Tipitina's before they had air conditioning. Um, when bands like White's, wow. yeah, oh yeah, uh, it's rough, man. Um, but when bands, what year are we talking about? Oh man, we're talking about ninety two, wow. ninety three, yeah. Uh, when bands like Panic were still playing yeah. Tipitina's, when Fish was still playing Tipitina's. Right. Did you ever see Fish at Tipitina's? I didn't see Fish there. I saw Fish. My first Fish show was in nineteen ninety two uh, at Tulane University in the theater there. Wow. Yeah. Uh, and they played a whole Game Hinge chunk, which wow. which was amazing. Yeah. Lucky you. I didn't know what I was getting into. Yeah. You know? Like, I... I my at friend, the time. Yeah, at the time. My friends were like, you need to see this band. Um, you didn't realize you were catching a Game Hinge. Correct. At the time. At the time. Yeah. yeah my, my only experience with Fish at that point, uh, we had been uh, in Atlanta at the Omni seeing the dead. And... A friend of ours from high school who'd gone up to the Northeast to go to college was in town for the shows, and we're all piled into his Volkswagen van, of course, right. riding back up to the uh, uh, campground at Stone Mountain, and he's like, you guys got to listen to this band. They're up from the Northeast. They're really cool. Nobody's heard of them here yet. And I'm like, all right. And so he put in the Junta album, and uh, I, I think like Fluffhead and Fee was where I was like, yeah. I'm in. Like, yeah. I don't know what this band is. But I fucking dig it. And um, so, yes, yeah, so when they came around uh, later that year, um, I was like, I'm, let's go see this band. Right. right on. And it was amazing. Uh, and so... Let's merge the two. Okay. So okay. I'm talking about Fish. I'm talking about New Orleans. You know, and we'll work our way to 96 Jazz Fest. But what was... Because this is such a musical city. Sure. These legends. You know, you got back then you had like George Porter playing weekly at Jimmy's, as yeah. I recall. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And obviously... We don't need to go down the list of all the incredible cats, but they, you know, all, they were all much younger in this period of time. So the sure. Ivan Nevels of the world, you know, so for the dirty dozens of the world, it was a different era. And then you've got Fish and the sort of like hippie community that hadn't really blossomed yet. What right. was that like here, pre '96 jazz? Yeah, sure. So pockets of fish heads? No. No. <laughs> no. There still aren't. I mean, there's yeah. like a pocket of fish heads in town. Right. So like. New Orleans has always been such a musical place that it's almost like there are no allegiances. They're just like, we're just all about it. Like, right. if it's good, let's do it. Yeah. Um, sort of deadhead nationalism doesn't yeah. exist with artists here. Yeah, so it's, it's, it's not like my allegiance is to the dead or to fish or to whatever. Yeah. It's just, I dig music. And like, there's a good band coming to tips, let's go see it. Um, and so we had deadheads. You know, and, and then, tons. yeah, 
Um, that has a storied history in the city. Absolutely. Not so much performing, but just absolutely. shit's gone down. <laughs> yeah, and, and you had, you know, like when the Dead played UNO um, in 87, 88. Uh, you had the like height the, of the Touch of Grey. Yeah, you had the Nevilles opening up for them. Yeah. So that was that. And the collab. That, that um, uh, connection, you yeah. know. Um, so do you think that that is actually at the we're going to so many rabbit holes I probably <laughs> so I love the connection of the dead and the nevils and the New Orleans dead thing which was obviously on display a couple weeks ago at Lock In with sure. Dead and Co and the Foundation of Funk yeah. Yeah, yeah but it really you know those in the know understand it's rooted from what you're just talking about which is when the devils played before the dead and there were some collaborations and obviously the dead played Ico Ico and Apaki Way right um, so not like unlike Fish which you said there might have been a pocket of Fish as there is a strong current of like deadheads or dead culture sure. in New Orleans. Not nearly on the scale of what you're talking about with New Orleans authentic music. Sure. But for out to, out of towners, outsiders, it's a heavy dead presence here. Yeah. You're saying that wasn't the case for fish for a long time. No, it wasn't. And still it, isn't. It wasn't. It still isn't. Um, and uh, you know, so in Baton Rouge, uh, when I was in college, Panic was the the, the big band. And by big band, I mean, like, I started seeing them at the Varsity Theater, which is, like, 800 people. Right. You know, they were, like, the best bar band going. Right. Um, they and, played a lot of Dead back then, didn't they? Uh, or some. A little bit, yeah. yeah. Um, Soda Fish. But, but they were just killing it. And um, um, so they would play bar gigs all over the South. And then for Halloween, uh, in the, the mid to late 90s, they would play, like, a three-night run in New Orleans at UNO. And it would just go apeshit. Um and um, so, like, they had a lot of influence uh, coming out of New Orleans, you know. Um, and uh, uh, so, like, there was a nice kind of mixture of that, uh, you know, a lot of uh, southern uh, spreadheads, you know. Um, and then you mix that with the dead and with, you know, I can remember seeing, uh, I've seen George Porter sit in with Panic a Bunch. I remember seeing Galactic open for him. Uh, you know, all kinds of, of nice uh, uh, collaborations and mixtures. Right on. Yeah. You know, I mean, Dirty Dozen Brass Band uh, doing an album with those guys. Yeah. 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 You know. And so, performing so. with the Met Jazz Fest, I've seen that. A- absolutely, yeah. Yeah. Um, so, forgot what we were talking about. Well, we started with New Orleans. We were talking about the fish culture in New Orleans, dead culture in New Orleans. Oh, yeah. I, so, so sorry. Yeah. Just to bring it back. I, I think New Orleans is, it's a music culture. Right. Like, it's not pigeonholed into this particular group or that particular group. It's like, we like good music. Right. You know? Um, if it's good stuff, we'll go out and check it out. You know? Yeah. Um, and, and it's not... Uh, 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 it's not limited. Yeah, definitely not. You know? Um, Take a look at Jazz Fest lineup. It's just, like, all over the map. Totally. And that happens for a reason. Totally. Yeah. Well, you know, we, we've been coming here for a long time. I feel like I've... Um, you know, learned a lot about how to comport myself here um, through the years, you know? Sure. No, you know, for real. I dig um, it. There's a lot of preconceived notions about New Orleans, like on a national s- scale, and obviously just in general that people have uh, stereotypes, whether it's the partying or whatever you want to say. Um, and, you know, this is a, it's a wonderful place, but there are some harsh realities here. Yeah. Um, you know, everybody goes to Katrina and obviously that in the aftermath but there's a lot more there's a ton of violence sure. um, hospital system education system so forth like, like a lot of 
modern American cities in decay. Yeah. But I think New Orleans, for whatever reason, in a lot of ways gets ignored, um, which is why something like Katrina could even happen. And um, I was wondering, as somebody who's lived here a long time and is very vested in this community in a lot of ways, um, what should we really... People who come here, like myself, who I don't want to be the asshole that you guys are like making fun of the other 50 weeks out of the year and then you know like I know that happens you know right. it's like and uh, that might be me and that's fine but I'm saying <laughs> if I can avoid that that would be of value to me because I want I, I'm very grateful for how I've been received and hosted and just the role that New Orleans sure. has played in my personal journey and my professional journey and I want to behave and I would like my people to do the same so right. what would you what would you say to folks out there that are coming down here with just like rage in their eyes only? Uh, you know, I'd say don't do not do anything here that you wouldn't do at home. Well, that's quite the opposite. People are coming here to do exactly that. Right. Well, some people. Right. The, at this, least the first couple times. So, you know, New Orleans has got this reputation as like an adult Disneyland. Right. Um, and it can be. You know, the bars don't close. Uh, times during uh, times of the year like Jazz Fest you can literally see music 24 hours a day. Yeah. Um, and you can, you can rage as hard as you want. Um, the word rage yeah. uh, didn't enter the New Orleans vernacular, and it still hasn't. Um, you know, it started popping up, uh, I don't know, six, seven, eight years ago. Let us name the album Rage is when it entered my personal vernacular. Correct. And then somewhere around there. And, uh, the hats were unaffiliated to Let Us were popping up. Yeah, totally. Um, and so you got these, these, these uh, I don't want to call them kids, but kids, kids, does. kids talking about raging. And like New Orleanians are like, no, bro, that's just a lifestyle. Like, we don't yeah. rage. We just live. Yeah. You know? And, and so I think part of it is knowing, uh, 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 knowing your own limits. Yeah. You know? Um, I love Jazz Fest. I love the people who come to Jazz Fest. I love the economic development that people bring. I, I've got friends who make uh, uh, their like their year is made or make or break by Jazz Fest. Right. You know that they can make enough money during Jazz Fest to where it really makes a difference in their economic situation. Right. You know. So I'm happy to contribute to that. Absolutely. Every freaking year. Absolutely. You know. And, uh, you know it's the, an honor. The biggest issue that we've had recently in New Orleans has been uh, a lot of controversy over short-term rentals. Yes. Uh, where um, people have come in, they bought houses, they flipped them, they turned them into short-term rentals. Uh, and Sapping the neighborhoods of the culture. Yeah. And so a lot of... people out. Exactly. You know, gentrification is a huge yeah. deal here. Yeah. But that uh, compounds it exponentially. Gentrification yeah. is going to happen without short-term housing. Sure. So, especially post-Katrina. Sure. That you throw in, you know, you throw yeah. in Airbnb, VRBO, all that, and you get new neighbors every two weeks all over town, and that we come here for the neighborhoods. Yeah, totally. You know, to 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 surgically remove that culture is criminal. Yeah. You know, if not legally criminal, spiritually criminal. Sure. You know, so my thoughts on that are, you know, leave the house, go go enjoy the city. Yeah. You know. How about people staying here? Like, what would be the answer? I would just to go on that issue since you yeah. brought it up, the short-term housing. So, like, I'm here for a wedding. Yeah. I wanted to accommodate myself, my partner, her parents, and, you know, I'll own it. We used Airbnb. It wasn't necessarily my call, but I have used Airbnb in other cities There's in There's nothing past. wrong with that. Right. But that's problematic, is what you're saying. It's like, it's like contributing to the beast 
hotels price you out, and there's all kinds of you know right. stuff that comes with hotels that you still want to deal with. Right. And I'm lucky I have a lot of friends in town, and you know, thanks to my friends, if you're listening, who host me here every year. I'm not going to blow up your spot on the, on the show, but you know who you are. Right. And I'd love you for that. Right. Because that's how I do it. Yeah. You know? And what would you be your suggestion? Or what do you, not suggestion, how would I say? What, how do you, how would we approach staying here, not contributing to the short-term housing divisive sort of gentrification problem, but also being able to come here on an affordable number so that we can, as you say, go out and do shit and spend our money in this town. Right. It's like, you know, right. cutting off our nose to spread our face, are we, or your face, I should say, by going to Airbnb, or should we use the Airbnb so it facilitates the experience and then the dollars go all over town? I mean, I don't have any, any personal interest in the whole thing. Um, You're just saying it's a divisive issue. Yeah, okay. yeah. Um, you it was know, on the Jazz Fest Funk page, and an article was posted, sure. and there was some spirited dialogue in there. You know, my, my thought is... Uh, if you're going to stay in a short-term rental, treat the neighborhood like you would your own. Right. You know, remember that the, the people you're staying next to probably live here. And, uh, uh, you know, don't, don't be that guy. Don't be a jerk. Mm -hmm. um, you know, be respectful that you're actually in a neighborhood. You know? Mm -hmm. um, I want as many people to come to New Orleans and spend their money here as we can. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I also want New Orleans to be affordable for people who live here. Um, mm -hmm. and, and there's got to be a way to make, make that all work. I don't know what it is. Right. Um, well, if you did, you'd probably have like some position somewhere in a city council somewhere <laughs> with a gavel and a bunch of residents waiting to talk right. to you. Right, right. Right on. Cool. I'm uh, really, really enjoying the conversation so far. Yeah, Jeffrey. absolutely. So thank you for making the time. Um, we're going to do a little transition here. Uh, love the music talk and the New Orleans talk, and I'm sure it'll still intersect with the rest of our conversation, but a big part of um, why I wanted to talk to you is, is the work that you do in, in recovery and addiction counseling. And Ironically or sadly or notedly, today is October 21st, and that uh, in 1995 on this day, Shannon Hoon, a uh, singer, from Blind Melon, who was a you know a super uh, pivotal figure in my life as a young man, learning about life, learning about music, writing, poetry, lyrics, energy. He was my hero, you know, in a different way than say a Lenny Kravitz was my hero. I wanted to look and act like Lenny Kravitz, but I felt like Shannon was me in a lot of ways, okay. and. Uh, Naturally, you know, Garcia dying in August 9th of that year was a seismic event in our community, and we could do a whole podcast on what's happened in the aftermath of Jerry's death. Or we could have a podcast about Kurt Cobain similarly. Right. And Shannon Hoon sort of uh, overshadowed. Also, Bradley Noel from Sublime died shortly after that. Mm -hmm. So those three guys are sort of the pillars. And unfortunately, or sadly, Shannon... Uh, kind of falls under the radar, but there's a huge group of us in you know around the world, but especially in this country, that still burn the flame brightly. Yeah. Now, he he died, uh, and as we talked about in front of Tipitinas, they were going to play that night. They were on a club tour. He had uh, his own bouts with addiction. Had been to rehab, gotten sober, relapsed. There was a sober coach 
on that tour okay. that by two weeks into the tour Shannon was like smoking crack in front of the coach so they sent him home um, he, he didn't die uh, really from New Orleans he died he was found here but it was whatever happened in Dallas and between Dallas and here nonetheless I've been to Tipitina's many times and sat in the spot where the bus is parked made a note of it the other night when I saw you there Carl D um, a mutual friend of ours here in town, Ryan Shapiro, is a friend of Shannon's, and sure. I've talked with him at length about all this. But I just wanted to, before we started on the topic of recovery and addiction and music world and all that, I wanted to just take a moment and honor and just sort of pour one out, if you will, for the dearly departed Shannon Hoon. Um, so yeah, uh, on that note, uh, you had mentioned earlier that both that you are sober and that you work in the addiction counseling. What would be your title? Uh, so I'm a licensed clinical social worker and I'm a licensed addictions counselor. Were they separate licenses? Yeah, yeah they are. Okay. They are. They're different licenses. So I, um, not only am I a social worker, I'm an addiction expert. Right on. Uh, yeah. Okay. Um, and um, I came into it uh, like a lot of folks do. So... Um, I don't mind sharing a lot of my personal story because hopefully it'll help somebody. Um, yeah. And I never mind sharing uh, stuff that uh, that potentially, you know, some people w would think it's embarrassing um, uh, if it's going to help somebody. So, uh, you know, by the time I was 19, I was drinking alcoholically, you know. Um, I knew from an early age that when I drank, it was different than the other people who drank. Um, Looking back on it, I drank and I used drugs to feel more like me than to feel different, you know. And from what I've come to understand, uh, people without the brain disease of addiction, they drink and they use to feel different than they normally do. Uh, I'm trying to feel like me. Um, so uh, I can tell you that drugs and alcohol worked for a long time in my life. You know, they were the solution to the, uh, uh, the craziness in my head. Um, I later came to understand that craziness is just a biochemical brain imbalance that we call addiction um, and that drugs and alcohol were the medicine that worked at that time you know uh, it quit working before I ever quit using uh, and I was uh, I was blessed in the sense that I got arrested and that triggered my family having an intervention which triggered me going to rehab for nine months um, and it was the best thing that ever happened to me you know, going to rehab for me was the closest I'd ever come to being in a Buddhist monastery until I spent time in a Buddhist monastery <laughs> last year. Um, you know, so I, um, I earned my seat, you know. I, uh, I got out of rehab and my training was in marketing. Um, I, I woke out of a blackout with an MBA. Mm -hmm. And um, so I went to work in marketing for a little while and I realized it didn't touch me and it didn't... Uh, uh, touch my soul you know um, and uh, I believe the universe has a way of making things work out the uh, the department I was working for had budget cuts my job no longer existed and uh, the halfway house that I had been through uh, and was volunteering there helping the guys who were there uh, offered me a job uh, basically to be a babysitter for these guys who were in rehab and I loved it uh, I had an absolute great time working with these guys and I made the decision to uh, to go back to school to get a, a different master, another master's degree in social work, um, and to become an addictions counselor. How old were you then? 
at that time? I was about 30. Okay. About 30 years old. And yeah. how long had you been sober when you were, when you became uh, the babysitter? The, the babysitter, they call them a tag. Um, okay. Yeah, I had, I was sober probably three years. Yeah. I'm going to rewind for a second. Just sure. To the, you mentioned intervention. So you get arrested. Sure. Intervention. Now you might recall some time ago I called you to ask for some insight on how to organize an intervention yeah. for a dear friend. Unfortunately, that never came to pass. A story for a conversation for another time. But how could you just give us, how did that go down, your own, your own intervention? Yeah. How did it happen? Um, so it wasn't like you see on TV. There, right. there, there wasn't an interventionist there. Okay. Um, you know, an intervention, for anybody who doesn't know, uh, is any time we address somebody's problem, we're having an intervention. Right. Whether it's a casual conversation or it's a, a, a group family meeting, um, all the way up to having a professional interventionist, which I do those too. Um, was there an ultimatum there? Was there a- yeah, so basically my family, you know, they held the line and um, said that, like, you can go to rehab and we'll help you. We'll get you a lawyer. We'll help get you out of trouble. Um, or, you know, you're on your own. Um, and here's the insanity of it. I was 26 years old. I had a master's degree. I was living back at my mom's house. I was unemployed. I was miserable. I was suicidal. But my brain kept telling me, you got this. Right. You're going to figure this out. Yeah. Um, and so, like I said, it was the best thing that ever could have happened for me. Right. Um, you know, I knew I was in trouble when the whole family was there. Sure. Yeah. You yeah. sort of came in and they were assembled. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, pretty so much. Serious looks on their faces. Pretty much, yeah. The energy was in the air. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And, and um, right away it was nine months. No, so right, so what I agreed to was basically to go to a detox center, okay. um, which is like a hospital. Right. Um, You're and in, in Baton Rouge at this time or Lafayette? Baton Rouge. Okay. Baton Rouge. And, um, and uh, so I go to this place and, um, called the Taw Center in Baton Rouge. Uh, I highly recommend them. They do good work. What's uh, it called? Taw? Taw. T-A-U. Okay. It should be towel, but right. everybody calls it Taw. Okay. Um, <laughs> And uh, so there was a counselor there who uh, basically was willing to take me on and and confront me on my insanity um, and convince my family that I needed to go to uh, a long-term program, that uh, 30 days in a uh, resort wasn't what I needed, um, that I needed uh, 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 some place that was going to help me grow up. So um, big props, I went to a place called St. Christopher's in uh, Baton Rouge. Uh, they do great work. Um, I, send pe- I still send people there. Uh, yeah. Okay. And, um, and yeah, so uh, that's what that looked like. And as soon as I went to court for the first time and the, the, the DA said, go back and do whatever they tell you to do for however long you're gonna, they tell you to do it, right. um, I knew I was in trouble. Yeah. You know, uh, so I just kind of put my head down and made the decision, like, I'm going to try this. Right. You know, because remember, I'm 26, I'm suicidal, and I'm unemployed. Right. Um, and you're super smart. I'm way too, works against you. I'm you way too smart for my own good. Right. A lot of people are. Yeah. Like, you can't be too dumb to get sober. Right. Like, really, like, people who are smart have a hard time with yeah. it. Because we you overthink everything. We overthink everything, Yeah. yeah. You know, so I made the decision at some point where, like, I'm going to do what these cats say. 
and uh, and see how it works. See how it works, and if it quits working, then I can change my mind. So you had said to me when we were talking off air about an you know unfortunate death that you know it's, sobriety never takes the first time, but it sounds like it may have for you. It did for me. Yeah. Interesting. So you're the exception. It happens. So I am. And it's not a rule, but it's uncommon. Well, and I'll tell you, it is uncommon. Um, and, and I think really a couple of factors why uh, I, it worked for me. I'd never tried to get sober before that. Right. Like, I had never considered getting sober as an option. Right. Um, I figured I was going to die uh, from this disease. I figured I would either, you know, overdose or commit suicide. Um, my goal was to be a French Quarter character who drank and used like so many of them do mm -hmm. and to just kind of ride it out you know so the thought of getting sober and having a, a, a sober lifestyle never entered right the furthest thing from I didn't I couldn't even conceive of it um, so I had never tried before so I had never I had never failed mm -hmm. um, and the fact that I was in a place where I was there for nine months um, I think really saved me because there were you know four safe walls yeah. Um, where all of the times where I probably would have gone out, um, there were a lot of speed bumps between me and going out and using. Right. Yeah. On. Not to mention, you know, charges hanging over my head. That too. Yeah. Right. Uh, on. That, that definitely will scare you. Absolutely. You know, scare you straight or scare you straighter. Totally. Get you on the right path, at least. Totally. I'm. I'm forever grateful that you know that happened yeah. because. I say that about my own experience that I talked to when I, you know, was incarcerated, you know. I'm not glad that, that my people had to live through that with me. Right. But as far as the effect it's had on my life and, and the lessons I've learned and so forth, you know, I am grateful. It is in a lot of ways, if not the best thing, one of the better things that's happened to me, even though it was excruciating to live through, as I imagine yours was too. Sure. And, and your parents and your family kind of seeing you like that, just a smart guy, got the degrees, got many talents guitar, photography, the written word, and you're killing yourself. Right. And that's got, that's, it's, it's, I know how it was for my people. And, you know, it's, it's amazing that you, you lived to tell the tale. You didn't just live to tell the tale, but you dedicated your life and your life's work to helping others. And, I, you know, that is even more than this amazing portraits on the wall and the work that we've talked about, you know, the reason I'm here is this. Yeah. It's because, you know, there's an epidemic. I mean, there's always been a drug problem. We're talking about Shannon Hoon 23 years ago, and people were saying the same stuff then about the Hendrixes and Joplins and all that 20 years before that. Right. You know, so it's here we are, basically a half century of pop music and addiction and disease and carnage, and just off the top, you know, Petty, Prince, Amy Winehouse, yeah. uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman, and most recently Mac Miller, who was like. Now we got another generation of cats that have an iconic artist that spoke for a generation dying, you know, in, in the midst of his, his best art, his best work. Yeah. Um, I just kind of wanted to interject, as I talked to you about with this podcast, that's a big inspiration for me, doing my podcast yeah. called The Dopey Podcast, and the community is called The Dopey Nation. And for those out there who don't know, it's a podcast that started uh, basically like silly and hilarious war stories uh, by people that are, you know, sober, kind of recounting, mostly sober. There were some people that had an inactive addiction that would contribute to it. It was hosted by these two cats, Dave and Chris. Um, both were in recovery, and lives are on the up and up, 
families, kids, master's degrees, all that stuff. One of the hosts, Chris, sadly and suddenly died. Um, he, had, he had five plus years sober, and um, you know the details are out there in terms of what happened. But the bottom line is, it was a huge event in this community of, of the you know, dopey nation, if you will. And from that, uh, it's really coalesced into this sort of online and, and beyond and through the podcast world community in recovery, people helping each other, people talk, telling stories and so forth. And as I told you, a patient of yours who's, who's an online name, P. Mastagetti, uh, I posted an interview that you had done about medically assisted treatment and that cat chimed in. This dude, Jeffrey, saved my life. And then another woman, whose name escapes me right now, uh, seconded that emotion, basically. <laughs> so that's our boy. And uh, it's just really been an amazing thing to watch happen. And the reason that, I mean, whether it was Mikey Garuba or yourself, there's a heavy thread of, of just discussing the, the disease and the drug epidemic and the reality of our surroundings, because it's, it's a part of all of our lives. And uh, a big part of that is because of Dopey. And um, for those wondering, Dave, the other half, the host, is soldiering on. Um, he's going to figure it out as he goes. He keeps doing the weekly podcast. And it's, it's, it's been a crazy ride to live. And it, it, it's, it's inspired me to bring this element to my podcast in the same way that you have. Because I want to reach people. I want to use my, whether it's the show or my voice or my readers out yeah. there, like, this is a this is serious serious shit and people are dying left and right and it could take anyone you know and i am so like uh, just in admiration of of you like not just to heap praise on you but for real um saving lives i mean i want to talk about so much about this um first and foremost i think that the the thing when it you got the does not compute here you are, a sober guy, and to the rest of the world, when you think of fish, Grateful Dead, New Orleans, whatever it is, the first thing you think of is inebriance. Right. Acid, drugs, partying, you go to the shows, you've never seen weed smoke like that. I mean, this is just like the stereotypes, right? Sure. But what I'm saying is, is you have uh, been able to exist in that world, and not on the fringes. You that is your life, that is your world, I mean, in terms of culturally and the friends and family and your community, when you live there, um, yet you operate as a, you know, addic addiction counselor and a social worker. So let's talk a little bit about the recovery community inside the dead and fish and, and jam communities and jam crews and so forth. Sure. Like, so we have the Wharf Rats, the originals, and, and yep. the Fellowship with Fish and Almost any band that has a collection or following has a sober group. Right. So what's that like? So, you know, kind of what, what and it makes sense to me that any group that has such a hardcore party scene is going to have a hardcore recovery scene. That almost inevitably, um, people who uh, uh, party that hard, there's going to be a, a percentage that needs to get sober. Right. Um, but they don't want to give up the fun and the excitement and the thing, you know. Um, like the Grateful Dead, uh, for me, uh, wasn't just about the party. It was about the music. Same thing with Fish. Same thing with New Orleans. That um, it's really, I mean, it is about the music. 
and it's about the culture and the fun and the dancing and the food and all that stuff. And at a, some point in my life, I realized uh, that the drugs and alcohol were taking away from that. Sure. You know, um, I can tell you one of my, my bottoms, if you would, um, I can remember uh, shortly before I got sober, um, I was at a widespread panic concert. Um, I couldn't get high enough to feel high. I couldn't do enough drugs to feel okay or connected. I was sitting up in the rafters. I didn't feel like finding my friends. Didn't feel like there, it was not a party. Right. It's total apathy. Yeah. It was. I was miserable. Yeah. And so I'm at one of the places where like it's supposed to be my happy place, mm -hmm. and I'm freaking miserable. Um, like that's a bottom for me. And uh, uh, you know, as far as the music goes, um, you know, I go to shows now and I can see people that are sp so spun out they're not even there. Yeah. Um, and uh, I, I, to me, that wouldn't be fun. No, it's not. You know? you're not in judgment of them because at no. one point you were them. Absolutely, um, absolutely. And I think that's important that, that we stress that. You know, it's not Abs about judging and shaming. It's no. about helping. Yeah, because I mean that was me. Right. You know, I was the dude who like would pass out upstairs at Tipitina's, and my friends would walk me down the stairs. You know, yeah. like there's not can't judge. Uh, yeah. um, I did it. You know. Um, but how about the concept of like. Uh, you know, having this weakness or this disease or however you want to phrase it, and I'm going to phrase it correctly, so uh, having, having the disease sure. and um, actively working, whether you're Steps guy or whatever is your program, um, and then stepping into the belly of the beast. I mean, there are other concerts you could go to. There are other uh, environments you could subject yourself to. Right. This is like, I mean... You want to go get fucked up? Go to the Dead Show. Sure. You know, it's, so how how do you like? You obviously personally navigate. You're very strong in your sobriety, and you actually have amazing program. And, and like, you're not one of those at risk people at this time. At the, I guess everyone's always at risk. Not right? true. Oh, not okay. true. Okay. I um, expand on that a little bit. Yeah, man. So just this past Labor Day, um, I bought some drugs. I bought really? some dope. Yeah. I, um, so I, I was at Fish in Denver. My back was hurting because I have back problems. So I went to the CBD, to the weed store uh -huh. uh, to get some CBD. And um, I let the salesman sell me on some CBD THC. And I bought it. And so immediately I felt my stomach crumple. And, uh, That's the line in the sand is, is, is THC. So CBD... No THC is okay in recovery terms? For me, yeah. Right. Absolutely. And, but the element of THC kind of crosses that line. Yeah. It's you know, like Bob Forrest won't even drink NyQuil. Yeah. So I mean, where's the line in the sand? I, I think it depends on each person, you know? Okay. Um, I, I don't take anything that's going to be mood or mind altering. You okay. know, I don't take anything that but, I'm... But Bob Ford, you know who I'm talking about. Recovery, I do, sure. Bob. Yeah. Um, don't. Say what you will, I don't, I don't have an opinion. I just listen to him sometimes. Sure. Um, but he's adamant. He said it on Dopey and otherwise. Um, adamant about uh, you, you can't know NyQuil. Right. Because it affect it, it changes... Well, what was your term? Uh, mood or mind mood altering. Or mind altering. So, yeah. Not like on purpose, but a side effect of Absolutely. Michael, his mood or mind altering. So sure. Just saying that it's hard to to navigate that. Yeah. You know. So you bought 
the THC CBD. Yeah, I bought the one. The guy basically he told me I was. Did you I, tell me you were in recovery? I did. I told him I'm sober and I don't. Yeah, I don't. I don't want anything that'll get me high. Yeah, I almost off the air. You tell me what dispensary that is because that's not cool. No, man, I don't blame the dude. He's a salesman. He's doing no, his job. No, but he's so. I let Fair him. Enough. I let him sell me on it. Okay. Uh, and you know, I, he told me it's not going to get you that high, and part of my brain went, "Okay, cool," and it was wow. about me. It was about the emotional state I was in at the time. Um, basically, I had some resentments. I, uh, I I had some disappointment going on, and uh, my brain weak moment, if you will. Yeah, like personally. Well, excuse me. My my biochemical imbalance was more unbalanced than usual. Okay. Um, and so my brain was going, Hey, you need something to fix this. And, uh, it was there. And not only there, it's like legal. So it's totally. not even like breaking the law to go cop. <laughs> and just cause it's legal. I mean, scotch is legal too. Right. And I can't drink that. Um, but I've learned in recovery and in my recovery program to listen to my gut. And so as soon as I did it, I called one of my buddies and was like, Hey man, I, I just bought some dope. And he was like, okay, let me think about that. Probably a bad idea. Right. And so we talked through it and dug into a a little bit about like, well, what's going on with you that with 18 years sober, you're buying dope? Right. Um, Is that the first time in the 18 years that you bought anything or like stepped into that? That was the first time I bought anything with the intention of me using it. Okay. Yeah. Gotcha. Um, And uh, yeah, it kind of freaked me out. You know, Um, but uh, basically my big buttons are money and romance. Right. And uh, those are your stressors, right? Yeah. And uh, there's no romance in my life right now. So big money buttons were bugging me. Um, And, you know, somebody hurt my feelings. And sometimes that's that's what's going to do it. You know, as trite as that sounds. No, it's not trite. I mean, my feelings were hurt. Yeah. And uh, that was the thing that was pushing it. So. You know, I can't say that I'm any closer or further from getting loaded than anybody else. Fair enough. You know? Why am I saying so? Yeah, no, not at all. Not at all. Um, and I have to be able to admit that. You know, I need folks that have been sober a long time to talk about still being crazy. Right. Or else when I'm crazy, I'm going to judge it. Right. And say things like, oh, well, you've been sober this long. You shouldn't, you know, your feelings shouldn't get hurt. Or yeah. you shouldn't have these crazy thoughts when... Uh, I don't think time has anything to do with it. You know? Um, I'm convinced I still have the same biochemical brain imbalance that I did when I was using. Right. You and know? It doesn't get, un- you can't unring no. that bell. My problem, my problem is not drugs and alcohol. My problem is the neurochemistry of my brain. Drugs and alcohol were my solution. Right. Yeah. Until they weren't. Until they didn't work anymore. Right. And so now I have a, a whole set of healthy solutions right. that get me to where I don't feel the need to have to drink or use drugs. Oh, let's get let's get back to what we were talking or what I had asked about. In yeah, sorry. The, no, no, sorry. That was a good detail. It was a good rabbit hole. Um, <laughs> but I just want to talk more about being in recovery and mm. going to the shows. And totally. Help, you know, and they say help me help you kind of yeah. thing. So help the folks out there that, man, they, they, they need to hear a yum but they've been right. sober for six, seven months. Right. And, you know, they're, they're struggling with the idea of going back to the place that, you know, it's the belly of the beast in terms of 
using. Absolutely. You know, so just like my mind, it's not a good neighborhood. And I shouldn't go there by myself. Okay. You know? Yeah. Um, there are these recovery groups within the Community. rock and roll community, in the jam band community. Yeah. So like the Fellowship, the Wharf Rats, the Jellyfish, the Gateway, the Digital Buddhas. Yeah. Um, please excuse anybody I'm missing. Um, where the bands have been kind enough to let us essentially have a table at the venue where people can have a safe space to check in, where people can have a place where they can go meet other sober people to enjoy the show with. Um, and so, like, that's a real safe way of doing it, you know? Sure. Um, we, uh, we started a, a, a meeting on Jam Cruise uh, when I started going on Jam Cruise um, called The Ship of Fools. And I can't tell you how many people that that's helped be able to enjoy Jam Cruise, you know. Sure. Um, and I'm. That's I'm, another one, Belly of the Beast. Absolutely. Me. Like that's that's a party scene. Yeah, not just a party scene. And I'm a professional. I've been around as much as you have. But I would say Jam Cruise in terms of like window of time and and just like what goes down in those five days is pretty much unparalleled in terms of partying. Sure. You know, and it's it's. It's serious business. It's ridiculous. I'd be probably most concerned going there than I even would a fish show or a, you right. know, whatever. Right. Um, but, you know, that's interesting. You know, yeah. it's a very simple sort of like things you're applying to other parts of your life. You yeah. to that. So, um, yeah. For, I've for, always admired folks that have been able to stay in recovery and, and still hit the shows with, you know, the same, you know, carefree abandon that they did when, Dude, before I, they got sober. I party harder now. Yeah. Than I did, you know, because I'm focused. Right, I'm. I'm not worried about other stuff that's going on. Right. You know, and um, you know, to know that I'm not alone uh, in it is is fantastic. Yeah, that's the thing I've I've really gotten out of the dopey experience is the whole not alone thing because once you know it was already a cool thing, but then when Chris died and like we were, you know, you listen to somebody, you know, whether I'm like working in the garden or driving or whatever listening to hours and hours of these fellas talk like I hope people start to listen to me and us absolutely you know so you get to know the hosts 100 plus episodes or whatever yeah um, and and when he died like we every, it was everybody lost a friend yeah and um, you are not alone you know that that just the theme that thread of bringing people together whether it was in mourning or just like to vent or um Fellowship, community coming together, yeah. uh, sharing. You know, I'm not in recovery, but I really do glean a lot of wisdom and gems and ideas out of the community and out of you know the various programs because I did you know and I guess I should say I do have a problem with drugs and therefore I need to be vigilant about that. Yeah. And you know, I, I realize that I can't use pharmaceutical drugs. They're not good for me. They ruin my life. They and. I end up in places like I don't want to be, yeah. such as jail. Yeah. And um, you know, I've thought long and hard about how much I wanted to talk about that sort of thing, you know, on the podcast because it's you know in ink, if you will, in the internet forever. But at the same time, you know, people are putting themselves out there to help other people and telling their stories, and you know, I want to be a part of that. And I think that it's admirable that. You know, you um, are willing to not just be in recovery or have a job in recovery, but come on my podcast. You're on the news the other day. 
you're on another video interview which I mentioned earlier and putting yourself out there publicly and, and you know basically you're going to become a beacon for people to reach out to you um, in more than one way or another sure. so I just wanted to just kind of acknowledge that yeah. you know you're doing serious seriously important work I appreciate that um, man I um I'm lucky in the sense that my there's nothing in my life or my career where being open about being sober is going to be detrimental. Right. You know, I'm I'm really lucky in that. I'm not a lawyer or a doctor or or a professional in the sense where somebody might not want to hire me uh, because I'm open and honest about my recovery. That's not a job you probably want to have. And it's probably not a job I'd want. You know, um, and. Uh, uh, you know, if me being honest and open about some stuff that's difficult helps just one person, then it's worth it. Totally worth it. Yeah. Totally worth it. Well, that's, you know, that's important. And I guess, like, something that you have been very vocal about, a big proponent about, is uh, medically assisted treatment. Yeah. So, um, it's, I understand it's, it's definitely a divisive or controversial issue in the recovery community. Yeah. Um, I've, I've experienced medically assisted treatment myself. Mm -hmm. And um, let's just start in the beginning. Um, define it for the layman out there listening, or lay, layman and laywomen. Like, what is medically assisted treatment? Sure. Um, so, medication assisted treatment or MAT. Medication, right. Um, is using uh, pharmaceuticals to help, well it's not just pharmaceuticals, it's using uh, medicines to help balance the neurochemistry that's addiction. So it's using substances to help create the uh, um, same positive effects that drug and alcohol do to create a brain chemical balance that is a state of okayness. Um, so essentially, you're taking a medicine to help you not have cravings, to feel, uh, uh, feel put together, to feel comfortable in your own skin, um, basically to do the things that for an alcoholic or an addict, an alcoholic or an addict, they used to get from taking a drink or a drug. Um, it's not about getting high, it's about getting straight. Mm -hmm. um, so there's a lot of controversy about it. In recovery communities, there's zero controversy about it in medicine, uh, which amazes me. Um, MAT is the gold standard in addiction treatment. MAT reduces mortality rates by 50%. Yet, people argue about it, uh, whether or not you're really sober or that not. That was going to be my next question. Sure. So, Who defines really sober? That person, right? Yeah, but I'm saying like, what? How is it cool? It's these old timers, these old book thumpers, as they say on like the dopey sure. nation, like the, these older cats that are kind of from the old school uh, steps programs, if you sure. will, and they won't acknowledge somebody that's on a Suboxone program as sober. Sure. So it's it's Suboxone is just the medicine du jour that right. causes controversy. Well, methadone. Yeah, and so here, here's what I tell them, is that 25 years ago or 30 years ago, if you were taking Prozac in AA, they told you you weren't sober. You weren't really sober because you were on this medicine to help you feel better. Nobody ever tells me that I'm not sober because I take Wellbutrin or because I take Lexapro. Right. Right? In my mind, 
that's medication-assisted treatment. When I take those sure. medicines, it helps balance my neurochemistry so I don't feel the need to drink or use drugs. Um, period. Right. Uh, I think part of the reason Suboxone gets a bad rap is that it can be used in people's addictive behavior, sure. in people's addictive cycle. Yeah, exactly. Right. That you run out of dope, so you use buprenorphine to feel straight until you can find more dope. Right. And use that way, it is a, a part of your addictive behavior. Yeah. Um, so for people who don't know, right. and when we talk about MAT, usually we're talking about opiate replacement therapy. Right. Um, opiates are things like uh, Oxycontin uh, and Hydrocodone and... Percocets, Lorisets, all of those, and then heroin and fentanyl. Right. Um, so they all fall under the general opioid category. Yeah. Um, when we talk about MAT, we're usually talking about buprenorphine, which is a chemical that uh, is a partial opioid agonist. And I won't get too technical, but what it does is it turns on the opiate receptors in the same places that Oxycontin and heroin would to make somebody feel normal, to make somebody feel straight, to make fe somebody feel like they can function. It turns on the receptors enough where uh, they're able to function and do what they need to do, but not so much that it gets them high. So people who are taking medicine as prescribed on a regular basis uh, and following their doctor's orders are in recovery. They're not getting high off of this medicine. Um, so, you know, back to answer, who is sober? People who are doing what their doctor tells them to do in my book are sober. Yeah, and I'm not going to challenge you on it. I just wanted to offer a counterpoint. Sure. Because um, what you're say saying makes a ton of sense to me, and I'm living proof that that stuff can't work. But um, uh, you said do what your doctor tells you. That's what you your choice of words. Now, yeah, probably not a great choice of, of words. Doctors are the ones that first scribbled that script that opened the door to the dragon in the first place. Yeah. And some of those doctors, and I'm not going to go off on a tangent here, they're compensated, and there's a uh, there's um say there's like motivating factors, or there's this um, there's a reason why doctors over prescribed particularly pain management and opiates for a big chunk of time. Now that there are spotlights on it, there's a lot more, uh, right. you know, there's registries in the states and all that stuff, but there's uh, and things that do entice the doctors, whether it was like junkets from Purdue Pharma to Paradise for this or all these sure. like sales goals and whatever. And so those doctors, maybe not the same doctors, but doctors, um, are how some of us got you know, Absolutely. our taste for that. Yeah. So it's hard to just respectfully say, do as your doctor tells you, sure. because, you know, that didn't always pan out in this regard. And I think that the medical profession and pharmaceutical industry are culpable in some ways for why we are where we are right now. Yeah, absolutely. And that's not an, uh, that's not an idea native to me. I mean, obviously, that's a yeah. commonly held assertion. Yeah, and I, I'm not saying doctors are infallible. Uh, in fact, I, I think, uh, just like you said, they play a huge part in getting us where we are. Um, and let me say this. If somebody is seeking uh, opiate replacement therapy, I would suggest getting a psychiatrist who is board certified in addiction medicine. That's what I did. Yeah. yeah, getting an addictionologist who knows the disease of addiction and who can help you. You're one of those? 
No, I'm not a doctor. Right. Uh, so that's a, that's an actual doctor, right? Like yeah, who, who writes for it, yeah. Right. Um, no, um, but I adhere to those policies and those, those, uh, that approach. My approach for somebody is to be on the least amount of medicine possible. So you're on the, 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 uh, the right dose of the right medicine right. and you're able to function. Yeah. Um, yeah, simple as that, you know? Um, but, but so under, it's understood between you and I, maybe not for everyone out there that there's the whole set of, uh, say like a reliance and addiction well, no one use the word addiction but dependence you know, dependence thank you with mat absolutely with bup, and and you're gonna actually you have to kick that too you do or you gotta stay on it forever you do right absolutely and that's that's not it's not kicking junk but it's no picnic no it's not and it, getting off of any psychotropic medication can potentially be difficult um suboxone or buprenorphine uh, is difficult to get off of, which is why you should do it under a doctor's care. Right. We do it over a long period of time. We step down slowly, and then we can give people medicines to help get through the the actual withdrawal part to make it uh, uh, as unpleasant, uh, to, to try to help with some of the unpleasant side effects of getting off of uh, opioid. Yeah. You know, yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's no mistake about it. Uh, people get dependent on buprenorphine. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, that's that's part of the reality. Anybody tells you difference lying. Right. Well, um, speaking of, while we're on that topic. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I am um, fond of a kratom. You know, okay. As a medically assisted treatment. Sure. It's obviously not through a doctor. Um, it's different than what we're discussing, but not really. I mean, it's similar in a lot of ways in terms of it scratches the itch and tells your brain. And I found that it's you know worked for me. Um, what is the establishment or like the, the real world recovery world that you exist in where you have a clients and appointments and meetings and stuff I see you on the news for? What are those folks in that world? What's their opinion of Kratom? You know, I think most people, their opinion is we don't have any scientifically backed research to right. be able to make an informed opinion. Okay. Um, I can tell you listening to people anecdotally, I've heard a ton of people talk about getting off of heroin using weed. Yeah, well, that was my next question. We're going to get to that. Okay. I'm all for it. Right. I'm all for it. If you, can, if you can get off of opiates by smoking weed, do it. Yeah. Yeah. If Kratom helps with your cravings and yeah. you're able to uh, maintain the dosage and not build tolerance and not abuse it, do it. Well, that's, that's, that's a big if. It's a huge if. Right. I've treated people whose primary addiction was kratom. Was kratom. I bet. Yeah. You know that that they got off of opiates, then they got onto kratom, uh, and started abusing it just like they did opiates. You yeah, know. No, I get it. Yeah. And so. Got to stay vigilant. Absolutely. Um, Where are you at with ibogaine? So, I'm very interested in ibogaine. Yeah. Um, everything I've read about it, all the research that I've read. Uh, you know I've, Laura Shapiro from I, the fish community? Yeah, I do know Laura. She's great. Yeah. Um, for any of you guys looking for ibogaine treatment out there, her, um, her clinic in Mexico in Cancun uh, does really great work. Yeah, I've heard that. Yeah. Um, and, uh, so you're interested in it? Totally. Okay. I'm interested in anything that's going to help people. Right on. I, I'm interested in anything that's going to help people. What so, is the opinion of the establishment of ibogaine? I think the opinion is the same, that we don't have enough uh, research to really uh, comprehend it. 
um, thanks to the U.S. government that made research on Ibogaine illegal. Uh, yeah, so there, there's Heaven a... forbid people should help themselves right. outside the spectrum of big pharma. Right, and that's what that's about. And that's um, why they're coming after Kratom too. Sure, absolutely. That or they have patents for what's inside of them that they're just going to reformulate. Right. You know, um, I'm up, I, I'm all for people getting better, however they can. You know, so the the reality of addiction treatment today in America is the majority of addiction treatment programs are using information and science based in 1939. So that's when the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous was written. Right. That's and, still the Bible. And it's still for most treatment programs. That's the deal. Yeah. That's their program. It's a uh, a twelve step uh, recovery program uh, with wraparound uh, uh, treatment. And I love AA. Plain and simple. I think AA saves people's lives. Mm -hmm. The problem is, what about the people it doesn't work for? Yeah, it's not for everyone. There's not one fix. Right. And, and that's what, why we're here, having conversations. Absolutely. Right. And what, what's really cool is AA says in that big book, we're not the only fix. Right. And uh, if you find recovery elsewhere, man, go get it. Right. Yeah. Um, it's people in AA that'll tell you it's the only right. fix. Um, because it's the one that worked for them. Yeah. You know, and Our I get it. School. You were dying. Something worked for you. Of course you want to uh, uh, help other people, and this is what worked for you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Did you work the steps when yeah. you got sober? Yeah, I do that thing. Yeah? Yeah. Right on. You know, I still do. Yeah, I was going to um, ask you to continue with yeah, the program. Yeah, I still do. Yeah. Uh, and it works for me. Uh, but I do a lot of stuff outside of that, too. Yeah. You know, their um, refuge recovery mm -hmm. is a, a Buddhist-based recovery program. Uh, I go to those meetings sometimes, and so it's pretty cool. Right uh, on. Uh, Meditative-based treatment. Uh, and for any of your listeners, meditation can work as well as low-dose uh, uh, antidepressants. Um, meditation, I think, is a, a crucial part yeah. to recovery. Yeah. You know, quieting the mind. It gets you high, meditating. Makes you feel straight. Yeah. yeah. Or whatever, how you want to see it. No, totally. totally. I just mean in terms of like if you're trying to really get to another plateau. Absolutely. Of self of, uh, you know, just however you want to describe it, it's, you're altering your consciousness. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, and the deeper you get into it, yeah. uh, you know, the deeper you go. And yeah. I mean, it's, you know, it's like organic DMT. Yeah. You're just so deep in there. Totally. I, uh, uh, you know, I mean, I'm a firm believer that uh, the, the thing I was looking for in drugs and alcohol uh, the whole time, there are much better ways to get it. You know, meditation being one of them. Sure. Um, I had lunch with a friend the other day who stated real plainly that yoga changed my life. Another one. Yeah, well, that yoga and meditation kind of go hand in yeah. hand. Um, yeah. And I was like, right on. Like yeah. that, absolutely, wherever you find it. It's like a well-rounded program where you work in the steps, but there's also meditation. And maybe there is even medication-assisted treatment. Absolutely. Um, on the topic of medication-assisted treatment, sure. I wanted to just kind of touch on them. Uh, big proponent of cannabis, just in general. I know, no, no, I know not everybody can smoke weed, so I don't think it's a fix-all. Just like the Big Book isn't a fix-all. Sure. Um, but I found that, you know, for the most part, it had great uh, effects for me in my uh, ability to abstain from drugs, pharmaceuticals. But I have a, you know, I smoke a lot of weed. You know. Okay. And uh, 
What I didn't know until recently is that there's actually a MAT school of thought burgeoning very, very, you know, sort of in the weeds, no pun intended. It's not, uh, maybe slightly, um, it's not out in the open huge yet, but, sure. you know, in places like Colorado and California where, you know, cannabis is just such a big part of the culture. Right. Um, this fellow named Joe Schrank, um, and this um, Remedy is the name of his spot in San Francisco, and they're okay. kind of like the major purveyor of cannabis as medically assisted treatment. Okay. And I've heard him on some pods and Googled some stuff and read up, and um, I'm interested in it, obviously, because I live in the Bay, and I just kind of would like to know more and see you know, what what's going on with that, But because oh, maybe that's actually my truth, and I just... I'm living it, and I'm just not connected to the clinical side of it. I don't know. Um, but then, obviously, there's the traditionalists that say, you can't smoke weed. You're, you know, it's the gateway drug, and you're going to be right back with the needle in your arm. Um, and obviously, the truth lies somewhere in the middle. Sure. Where are you at on, on cannabis in recovery? I've had people tell me that they were able to kick heroin smoking weed. And if that works for them, power to them. You know, I'm, I'm a proponent of harm reduction in recovery. So is there a way we can get you to do whatever you're doing in a safer fashion? So abstinence is the very far end of harm reduction. Clean needles is the other shallow end, shallow end of harm reduction. And so if you... Quitting using opiates means you're going to use cannabis? Rock on. You know, recovery is a broad term for me. I, I, uh, I use the phrase recovery lifestyle. That's my term for it. Um, I try not to use the word sober anymore because I think sober, quote unquote, is confusing. I think a recovery lifestyle is broad and encompassing. You know? So who am I to judge if you tell me when I smoke weed, I keep my job, I don't hit my wife, my kids like me, and I'm able to go about my daily routine. Who am I to say, ah, but you're not really in recovery? Fair F, F that. Yeah. I tell people the same thing about Suboxone. Mm -hmm. If you're on Suboxone, which is buprenorphine, for those right. of you guys who don't know. That's like the brand name. That's the brand name. So if you're on buprenorphine and you tell me, uh, I don't beat my wife, I keep my job, my kids like me, and I'm able to uh, go about my daily routine, awesome. You know, in, in the traditional addiction treatment realm, we think, ah, but you could be better. Uh, that's arrogance. Yeah. That's arrogance on my part. So one of the reasons that I opened up the, the clinic that I have now, it's called Medication Assisted Recovery Centers. And you're the proprietor of it? I am. I own it with a partner. Awesome. Um, I started it because people are falling between the cracks. Right. The, the traditional recovery community is saying, um, you have to quit using everything. You have to quit drinking. You have to come here for 12 hours a week. You have to embrace a 12-step program if you want to get better. All I'm saying is, can I get you to take medicine, not use heroin or fentanyl today, and not die? Right. It's my don't die clinic. Yeah. It, 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 there are too many people that we have killed and by we I mean the addiction treatment community by turning them away we've killed them because we tell them well you're not willing to do it our way yeah. or even worse you're just not ready 
Yeah. And then they die. And then they die. And so my response to that is, are, are you at least ready where we can get you off of heroin and onto medicine? Right. Yeah. I can start there. I can totally start there. And if you're not there, I know the people who can get you, can we at least get you to use clean needles so right. you don't get hepatitis C or HIV right. while you're still active? Yeah. You know? That's another thing. It's like the, there's, a, there's a stigma with the whole uh, safe injection sites and clean needles and stuff. Yeah. And it's just like a hurdle. It's just with the clinical data is there. I mean, it helps considerably, but it's kind of like a tacit acknowledgement that it's happening. So... It is happening, people. Right. If, you, if you think there's not a drug addiction problem in this country, your head's in the sand. And here's what's funny. Those uh, safe injection sites in Europe, they have better recovery rates than our addiction treatment programs in the U.S. do. So people come visit them there, they sit, they talk with them, they reason with them, they get through to some. That's it. Right. That's it. Yeah. They're not being judged. And when they're ready for help, here's the super cool part. You have the safe injection site on the first floor. You've got the doctor's offices on the second floor. You've got the rehab on the third floor. That one day when you're like, you know what, I think I want some help, we can do it today. Yeah. It's not going to be, here's a two-week waiting list. Right. You don't, your, your insurance right. doesn't cover it. Um, sorry, we can't help you. Um, you know, they're able to actually help people. That's awesome. Yeah. yeah. I'm a big fan. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. That's great, man. And I'm stoked to hear about, you know, I knew that you were doing that, but I didn't realize you were the actual proprietor of the yeah. recovery center. So that's amazing. Yeah. One more time, the name of it for our listeners. It's a medication assisted recovery centers. Uh-huh. It's Mark, M-A-R-C dot healthcare. And that's uh, located here in New Orleans? It is. Well, we're in Metairie and Slidell. Okay. So two of the suburbs. Right on. So you yeah. have two locations. We have two locations. Awesome. Yeah. I just wanted to kind of, uh, you mentioned a couple times about fentanyl, and it's just really crazy now. I mean, if it wasn't bad already with the opiate epidemic and the Oxycontin thing that's still sure. over and all the sort of domino effect that's going on, um, now you've got this fentanyl out that's out there and rapidly moving across, uh, not just in opiates anymore. No. And, and then you also have Narcan. Um, so it's like you have this incredible medicine that can save a life by in a matter of moments and people that overdosed and would have normally died can be like brought back to life basically yeah and then you also have this instant killer out there this fentanyl that even if like a fingernail or less amount of this fentanyl is in the bag of dope or it's in the fake pills that somebody made because of you know the pharmaceutical industry whatever right um if that happens you're done. That's what happened with Chris, they think, uh, with, with Dopey. Yeah. So it's crazy to think, you know, the, the, the po- polarity of those, like the instant killer and the lifesaver, and that's the reality of the climate. If there's anything that keeps me right, that keeps me off the shit, it's that. It's, 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 that's the world. That's the drug world now. Or it's just Russian roulette. Yeah. And uh, people bringing people back to life and it just... I'm all for Narcan, but I, Absolutely. I don't like these prevailing attitudes. So it's like, well, if I fall out and there's Narcan, what? Kidding me? Yeah. You know, but some of, you know, people in active use, that's how their mind works. Sure. Like, it's almost a safety net to them. And that's fucking frightening. Well, it's frightening, but I'm glad they have a safety net. Of course. You know, you know we don't want that, people that, dying. I'm, I just that, that line of thinking is, is sure. 
Well, I'm saying that's a big motivator, a big of what keeps me out of trouble. Yeah. I, I, um, my world got really rocked earlier this year. Um, there was a young lady um, who I started treating when she was like 17 or 18. Um, and she struggled with, uh, with addiction for the past 10 years. Um, she was doing great. She was sober. She was doing the 12-step thing. She was living in a sober living house. Um, and I thought she was on, on a great path. And she was. She was. But one Saturday night, she went out and she relapsed, and it killed her. You know? Um, I think I, you post about that, maybe? Probably. I think I, I mean, I it really, really, really bothered yeah. me because, I mean, she was like a little sister at this point. I've been working with her for 10 years. That's and... Um, Brutal, man. Broke my heart. Sorry. And uh, thanks. And, and I say that to say that 10 years ago, when somebody relapsed, I wasn't worried about them dying. Right. You know, I, I wasn't worried about this weekend's going to kill that kid. Right. Um, and now I do. I mean, now that's, that's the reality is um, with fentanyl in particular, and that's just the drug du jour, you know, but it's so powerful that um, it's killing people. And not only is it showing up in opiates, it's showing up in cocaine, Yeah, you know, um, which blows yeah. my mind. Um, Unintended. Well, right, right, <laughs> totally. Um, that this stuff is, it's, it's basically what people are using to cut drugs with right. these days. Um, it just contaminates and then it's... And, you know, ounce for ounce, it's cheaper to manufacture. Yeah than anything else so they're using it as a filler yeah and or some bags are just full fent now you're seeing and some people yeah that's true i talked with a kid last week who specifically fentanyl is what he was using yeah. and that's what he enjoyed using yeah yeah it's crazy to me it, it is it's insane um well i'm glad that we have people like you on the case and uh out there doing this good work opening the center here Metairie and Slidell and doing the interviews, you know, with me and with others. It's really, just really amazing to know you and to know the work that you're doing and to know where it comes from and how you got there and your willingness to share with others and help others. It just, hopefully, you know, this podcast that gets a little bit of uh, traction and people start to listen to it. Sure. Because I think that this is an evergreen episode. I mean, we talked about music stuff or whatever, but, you know, this is the type of content that could really reach people, and I hope that it does that, and I'm really, really just honored to have you on the show, but I don't want to end on a super morbid note, so we're going to do one last question. <laughs> okay. Okay, because we're talking about our friends dying and the epidemic and all sure. that support, sure. that's why I had you here, but we're going um, to shift into something that I know you'll be stoked on, and that is you recently took a trip to Cuba. Yeah, man. Right. So uh, my mom also went to Cuba uh, when it became okay to go again. She went on like a humanitarian thing with sure. a religious organization to bring medicine to people. Um, and the Maddie and Destiny went to Cuba. Yeah. And you went to Cuba. So just tell me maybe two things that stick out of the you, you know treasured memories or experiences that you loved about the trip. Okay. Um, it was awesome, man. It was fun. Uh, so I think like the two coolest memories from that trip. Um, so I'm a scuba diver. Um, and, uh, I went on dives, uh, for a couple of days there and it was the first time that I had 
been ferried to the dive site on a rowboat. So I went scuba diving off the back of a rowboat in Cuba. Uh, so that was really cool. Um, that sounds amazing. It was, man. Great, great, uh, great water there. It's nice and clear. Um, a lot of nice uh, uh, sea life. Um, so that was really fun. And I think the, the other one that I really, really loved, uh, there's a town called San Fuegos that is, uh, it's not, it, it is a tourist town, but it's not like a tourist trap. Um, and in the town center, there are these steps, uh, and it's where all the music happens at night. Right on. So it's like, it's, it's, uh, uh, it's just like a plaza, you know? But the plaza is actually a series of steps. Um, some of the most amazing music and dancing. I can only imagine. Ever. Like, it Cuban was... Cuban rhythms are like none other. Oh, man, it was fun. It was fun. Wow. And I got to meet some musicians while I was there, so that was super cool. Yeah. Um, really great people, man. I, How long I, were you down there? I was there for like 10 days. Wow. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah, I took the, uh, the, the 10 days around the 4th of July cool. uh, and, and hopped down there. It was super easy, man. Direct yeah. flight from Fort Lauderdale. I bet. Yeah. Awesome, man. Yeah. I enjoyed living that vicariously through you and Thanks. some of the stuff that you posted. So, yeah, I just wanted to kind of touch on that a little Absolutely. bit. Absolutely. You know, at the end of the day, there's a lot of darkness out there. You know, politically, culturally, there's a lot of hatred, there's a lot of anger. Here in New Orleans with the statues and cool sure. around the country with the president and so forth. And I think it's important that um, in high school, I was an editor of this music art and leisure magazine. Okay. In, uh, called Lebendus, which is Greek for the joy of living. Nice. And I, I often think about that, Lebendus, like the, the joy of living, you know. Um, it's just, you know, living in wonder, if you will, to borrow a phrase. Um, it's important. We need that as yeah. humans. And um, I just didn't want to wrap up this amazing powwow on death and darkness. No. Well, the, so I needed to hear a little bit of... Absolutely. Because Cuba, you know, that really is awesome because not many people have really done it because of the sure. political and embargo and all that. So sure. um, my mom and Destiny and Maddie and you, I feel like all these people around me, it's just, it's in my, it's in my future. It's one good day stuff. Or so thank and you for sharing. That. You're welcome. And you know, the, 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 the message of hope, that recovery yeah. is a message of hope. It is. You know, people get better every day. Um, people who can't see a way out find one you know being able to uh, uh, to live a happy productive joyous life mm -hmm. like that's the deal yeah. you know so if, it's so a good one if any, it's a good deal if anybody out there is listening thinks there's not a way out there is right well should they be listening and uh, wanted to reach out to you what's the best way to get you yeah um, go to my website it's uh, it's mark m-a-r-c dot healthcare mark.healthcare.healthcare great yeah. Jeffrey Dupuy live from New Orleans Louisiana it's been an absolute joy and pleasure to sit here with you in your home these lovely surroundings in uptown New Orleans and I just want to say thank you for the time thank and you then, V I appreciate it yeah well we'll do it again sometime and I'm going to see you in a few days that's right we'll be at Hula yeah back at Hula at Swanee it's going to be amazing yep so we'll catch up there and do some dancing. Awesome. We'll do some raging. Ah, <laughs> it's a lifestyle. Right, exactly. <laughs> exactly. This has been uh, the Up for Life podcast with B. Getz, and uh, we'll see you later.
Yes, indeedy. Want to say thank you to Mr. Jeffrey Dupuy for that wonderful and fascinating conversation. Uh, really just feel good about bringing people like Jeffrey on the podcast. He's not necessarily a bold font name when you're scrolling through, but he's such an important contributor to the community as a photographer and more importantly uh, with his work with addiction and recovery and it just uh, feels good to be able to give him a platform to discuss that and also tell his own story and uh, we can connect some dots from the jam based days and New Orleans stuff I mean it was just uh, really a joy to have him on the show so thanks Jeffrey Outro music, Dr. Claw from Firefest. That's a sort of New Orleans meets New York supergroup with members of Dumpster Funk and uh, Lettuce and Cyril Neville fronting the band at the moment here that we're hearing it from the Firefest a couple years back. So, yeah, Jeffrey Dupuy, much obliged. We appreciate you coming on the show. Keeping the topic in New Orleans, we're going to shift things over to give my man J.A. a call. Talk about the Rolling Stones coming to Jazz Fest for the 50th anniversary of Jazz Fest. The last weekend of April, first weekend of May is Jazz Fest and Stones are coming in Thursday, May 2nd. There's been a lot of uh, conversation online and elsewhere about you know, the pros and cons of this big swing that Quint and the rest of the folks at New Orleans Jazz and Heritage Festival are taking by bringing the Stones in, and we talk a lot about it with J.A. Uh, he's my resident Stones guy. Uh, he's, like I said, one of my best friends my whole life and somebody I've seen more music with than just about anybody else, and he understands music culture and understands uh just the business and the game and the art and the stones are really uh, his favorite band and he was always a wealth of knowledge and perspective and uh, information uh, about the rolling stones so naturally when uh, something that's really in my wheelhouse being new orleans jazz fest hosting the rolling stones which is you know his bread and butter we had to have a conversation and chop it up so I'm going to give my man J.A. a call. We're going to talk about all the new circumstances surrounding the Stones coming to Jazz Fest, the festival moving Locals Day uh, to first Thursday for a first ever first Thursday. And uh, there's a the ticket price. There's the shutting down the rest of the stages. There is the absolute glory of hosting the greatest rock and roll band of all time for the headlining slot of the 50th Jazz Fest. There's all the cool shit that's going to spill out into the clubs. And there's the rumors about maybe a Carl D thing. Who knows? We get all into that stuff with J.A. coming right up. This is the Up for Life podcast, and I'm your host, B. Getz.
Bri. What up, J.A.? How you doing? Oh, great. Thanks for having me back on. Yeah, man. I'm, people have been asking, you know. People have been uh, sliding into my DMs saying, when's J.A. coming back? Well, so, that's, that's, that's pretty awesome. Yeah, I mean, a couple of them are friends, but even still, it's more than anyone else gets any any props. So we appreciate you making the time, and, and I'm glad to have you back on. I wanted to quick share uh, something funny with you. I just walked home from the cheesesteak shop. Uh, here in Oakland, it's a establishment that uh, is tries to be authentic Philly cheesesteak so much they obviously they fly in the Amoroso rolls three times a week. They do a chop steak like Jim style. They've got like you know framed Dr. J and Moses Malone and Mike Schmidt. Sounds and, awesome. And uh, and I would say like it would be an average at best local cheesesteak, but uh, for out here in Oakland, it's a beautiful thing. Um, I wanted to ask for the people listening at home, you're somebody who I've shared the glory of a cheesesteak with many, many occasions. What is your, you still live in Philadelphia, you're about as Philly as it gets. What's your go-to cheesesteak, if you even eat them anymore? I, I try not to, but I do, um, and always still gyms on South Street. Uh, that not warms exactly. my heart. That warms my heart, man. Still my number one, too, whenever I first stop after the airport. The, uh, it's funny because the guys from Promoter 101, they're going to be in town next week and they keep on talking about cheesesteaks and, and, and no one has given them the right advice. Uh-oh. Well, maybe someone can get into their ear. You've been listening to a lot of Promoter 101. I'm a, I'm a fan of that pod, but I'm a little behind. Yeah, no, I, I try and check out. I, I, I wind up listening to about usually the first half of every episode, but I've listened to most of them. Right on, right on. So I wonder if they're going to have some conversation about uh, New Orleans Jazz Fest. That's the reason that I'm I'm having you on the pod, uh, specifically because we have uh, Jeffrey Dupuy, a New Orleans favorite, as the featured guest, but also because when I think of the Rolling Stones, I think of you, you know? And well, thank you. You, you, Most you people are, think of Mick Jagger. Yeah, Mick or Keith or whatever it is, but, you know, growing up, the Stones, even before the Fish were such a huge part of your life, the Stones were your band, and you know you you saw them going back to Steel Wheels, and always like were like my lifeline into the world of the Stones and that whole culture, and just see, seeing it collide with Jazz Fest, and we'll talk about all the pros and cons. Uh, it's just been kind of crazy to watch from afar. So I wanted to get first your take. Was it something that surprised you when you saw that they were booked for a Jazz Fest in New Orleans? Well. Um, nothing, not really surprising because, I mean, it's the world's greatest rock and roll band at the world's greatest festival. I mean, it's a, definitely a match made in heaven. Um, it's, it might, you know, it, they're, both of these entities are so big on their own when they came together, it kind of like, I don't, I guess the city and the people that fly in it, it's almost too much for everyone. Yeah, that seems to be what they're trying to avoid. Uh, with the changes that they've made. Now, not everyone knows what we're talking about, so we're just going to go through it. Uh, The Stones are booked to play on the second Thursday, and the festival happens for two weekends, the last one in April, the first one in May. So second Thursday, May 2nd. Um, First things first, uh, normally a 70-something dollar ticket, and I know you went to Jazz Fest in 96 when it was like in the 40s. Um, 40s? Try 12 or 14 dollars, 45 through the three days. As a matter of fact, it was uh, like carnival tickets. So you, you know, like how they, you know, on a roll. You know yeah, what I'm yeah. They roll. That's how you bought your tickets back then. You just you could buy them at like grocery stores and like local places like that. And uh, 
depending on, uh, you know, local Vietnam vet, you know, there's all different rates for the tickets and nothing really went over like 15 bucks or 14 That's bucks. That's amazing. <laughs> well, 96 was the year that fish invaded and the almonds played. And I know you went back with me a couple of times in the early 2000s, but now it's 70. As a matter of fact, there wasn't even really late night shows. Um, like a late night show consisted of the band playing the UNO Lakefront Arena, you know, right. or George Porter's regular gig at Jimmy. Yeah, you know, nothing uh, starting at two, three, four in the morning, you know, like that's going on now. It's it, right. it, 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 it was uh, definitely a great time to go to see like the full transition that happened within two, three years after that. Yeah, I, I hopped on in 2000 and that that uh, fest outside of fest was well underway. But yeah, so a fairgrounds ticket costs in the 70s now, or now, as I recall. But the Rolling Stones ticket on second Thursday uh, is a $185 ticket. And uh, they have like 17 stages of music every day. But they're stopping, for the first time ever, stopping the music at all the other stages. So that when the Stones take the stage at the Acura stage, that, that'll be the only stage of music. For the first time ever, they're capping attendance. It's sold out at roughly 50,000 tickets. Um, and then the big, the big thing that's been quote unquote controversial, uh, on the local level at least, is that it's happening on what's traditionally Locals Day, a reduced, uh, like sort of promotional day for local folks. People take off work, they organize like charity things and come in large groups, and that has been displaced to First Thursday, which has never happened before. They're creating a First Thursday, making it Locals Day to accommodate for the Stones in addition to all the other changes I detailed, plus others. Um, so what should normally be a holy shit, joyous, uh, you know, reaction has been met with a lot of sort of like sniping and, and negative reaction from like the true core essence of Jazz Fest, which is the locals in New Orleans. Whether Now, I don't want to talk shit, but the, the lineup from a local level, for and it's, I didn't even state it's the 50th Jazz Fest. This is the, the uh, I guess it's the golden anniversary is the 50th. So 50 years of Jazz Fest, Rolling Stones headlining, and they have an amazing, and I've been going to, this will be my 17th Jazz Fest. They have an amazing local lineup this year. Like people would say that they overlooked a lot of folks in the past, and I'm sure there'll be a few people piping up that listen to say, oh, they overlooked this one and that one. But from, you know, cursory glance that I've had, uh, it, it appears you're to never going to please everyone. Correct. That said, uh, some of that awesomeness and positive energy has been sort of muted by the blowback for the stone. So, you know, you mentioned these two big entities, like there had to be compromises made so that the stones who are, as you said, the greatest rock and roll band and probably the most uh, involved touring uh, unit in terms of what it takes to put their show on on a night to night, night to night basis. Um, to put that and scale it into the Acura stage at Jazz Fest is going to take some creativity. Am I right? Well, I mean, you know, it's strange. Like, when you go see a regular season football game, it costs $25 to park, we'll say, right? But then when the Eagles make the playoffs, for some reason that parking spot costs $50. It's the same parking spot. It's the same stage. They're going to go on. They're going to do their show. The problem is it costs $11 million to bring the Stones into Jazz Fest. That's where they need to get – that's where they're recouping the money. That's what. That's why they need to make money. 
I understand that, and and I understand the ticket hike. I'm just saying, like, it's pretty extreme, and they're displacing the locals. And I don't know how to feel about it. I'm going to go to Jazz Fest this year. I don't think I'll make it in for that show because the prices are already exorbitant, and then all the, you know, other stuff that goes along with it. And I'm bummed because there's some great stuff that day. And you know, I mean, really those... capping it at fifty thousand, it would be almost worth it because just to walk around those fairgrounds at that type of audience is like amazing. I mean, you know, it's normally 70, 80, sometimes yeah. 90,000 people. Yeah. on like Pearl Jam or Buffett days, but they're also a uh, local Thursday is generally a light day, like 30, 40, because they don't have some mega headliner that day usually. And, and don't, and also like, you know, um, when I first started going in the nineties, there was no Bon Jovi headliner. There was no Bruce Springsteen headliner. You know, they yeah, they had a Jimmy Buffett, um, a Dave Matthews, but that was about as far as it got. And Jimmy Buffett has a lot of um, Roots local in ties yeah. to New Orleans. Dave Matthews, of course, you know, very influenced by that scene. So that was about as, you know, even when, you know, like a fish playing there, the meters went on after them. and and Or, I'm sorry, the Neville brothers went on after them. And we all know that, you know, that's a sign of respect, you know, like that, but like the Neville brothers and Dr. John, those were the normal headliners, Fat Domino, et cetera. Yeah. And for some, you know, I guess. Shell. Shell. For, Shell got it, involved. It was the, the Shell Corporation. Name. Right. Yeah. Anyway. AG broke it, you know. Right. I want to just close out with something musical with it. Um, I know you got a poker game ahead of you tonight. No, it's all good. I got time. But, uh. You know, musically, when you think of the Stones and the Stones, uh, you know, their music is rooted in blues and R&B. And there's a lot of sort of New Orleans vibe at times uh, in some of their compositions. Oh, no doubt. No doubt. And, and New Orleans is a huge influence for the Stones. They, uh, the Voodoo Lounge is, uh, you know, has a lot of New Orleans influence, that record. Uh, hence the name of the record. Um, and, of course, all the uh, original musicians. I mean, they, but... That, you know, it's still like, you know, the Stones are still, like we said, it's still a lot bigger than the original concept of this event. It is. It is. And and I just hope that um, that they incorporate the tradition and whether it's with sit-ins or whether it's A lot it's of with... the traditions of Jazz Fest have been thrown out the window to begin with, just like, like lots of other fests. I mean, I remember going to Jazz Fest and a cool thing was, how the locals, you know, would line up and they would get there at nine, ten o'clock in the morning and watch the first band at the Acura stage all the way to the headliner. And the first, you know, 20 rows was filled up with these local people who would normally not have the opportunity to probably see a lot of these big names. And now they kind of cut that away. And now the locals have to or the people who line up have to sit 50 yards back because of um, VIP packages and all that shit. So it's not like the jazz fest we grew up on, but then, you know, what is, you know? Fair enough. I just, uh, you know, I hope that the Stones, if they don't, like, adhere to tradition, per se, they just play some New Orleans-soaked music, maybe bring up a Cyril Neville, bring up a George Porter, something like that. And, uh, you know, there's been nothing official or even unofficial, but a lot of buzz about, you know, Carl Denson being the king of the jazz fest late night. Uh, and the Jazz Fest Shaman, and obviously the newest minted member of the Stones touring band, replacing the late, great Bobby Keys about four-ish years ago. And uh, Carl's going to be breezing in and out of Jazz Fest twice uh, because he's on Stones tour, but he's booked Tiny Universe gigs both weekends, bracketing the uh, 
the Stones gig, and uh, also has an Aretha Franklin tribute planned with the Tiny Universe. But the buzz is that something big is going to go down late night on Thursday night, the night the Stones play. So I don't know, man. If you're if you're uh, on the fence, you might want to consider it before they make that announcement. I mean. Imagine Ronnie sitting in with the tiny universe. That will be one of the most, I mean, you know, we saw Lenny Kravitz come on stage with the tiny right. universe. Could this you is, imagine a Rolling Stones coming on Carl's stage? I mean, it'd be unbelievable. It would, it would be the pinnacle of his career and the energy. It would be amazing. And I, I, I definitely foresee it happening. Uh, the Stones um, always kick off their tour the night or two before they play a club show so for you people in Miami, you know, keep an eye out. They'll definitely be playing a club show um, before that, you know, leg of the tour starts. And it's great because, like, sometimes they only charge you, like, 12 or $14 for the ticket. And even in uh, some cities, they've given you the money back when you've come in. That's amazing, man. <laughs> yeah, it's it's so, you know, I mean, not that, you know, not that that money's a big deal to those guys. But I, I, uh, I definitely should, would assume that Carl's uh, – talk to the guys about what he does when he goes down there. And, you know, it would be a really awesome thing to see if it happens. Yeah, for, from our lips to, uh, you know, Ronnie or Keith or, you know, Evan, Mick, for to their ears, you know, we can only hope. But honestly, there's nothing like Carl Diaz. And, and you know, you got Daryl Jones, you know, playing bass. He's been in the band, you know, for over 20 years. Uh, played with Miles, you know. I'm, I'm sure he was way familiar with Carl before he even got to the band. Good point, man. That's a, that's why I have you on the show, J.A., because you got nuggets. <laughs> well, yeah, well, if Daryl Jones comes out, you might have to hide me. Uh, he he walked away from me one time in the middle of a conversation. <laughs> hey, man, you know, you're one of those super fans, so you never know. Yeah. Man. You might not have been ready yeah. for J.A. He bugged out a little bit. He was like, really? You're that guy who called my hotel room? Right on. Well, uh, before I sign <laughs> off, <laughs> that's funny calling hotel rooms that's old school well i mean i knew he wouldn't have a fake name it was his first night in the band see that's some hardcore <laughs> shit right there ja good move brother well dude that's i appreciate much, it well, when i asked him where mick and keith was that's what he was like all right it's time to go <laughs> right he probably got used to that move all these years later <laughs> no i'm sure he doesn't go by daryl jones anymore in the hotel yeah i would guess he learned his lesson <laughs> from you early on yep Called that D.C. hotel room right away on the first night. Right on. Well, man, that was a great one. I appreciate you, uh, you know, breaking off a few minutes to talk some stones, talk some jazz fest, just catch up. Like I told you, the people have been asking. So we'll do it again in about a month. I'm going to send you Absolutely. these uh, a couple uh, links to these uh, Dusty Rhodes car commercials from the 80s that uh, I got sent that are unbelievable. So, American uh, Dream. Yeah, American Dream. Saw. Kurt Angle just had another bitter loss. It could be the end of his career as uh, Monday Night Raw is taking place as you and I have this conversation. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, we'll do a wrestling hit one day. Definitely. Yeah, the guys on that other podcast, they love it. <laughs> right on. Well, yo, man. Yeah, no doubt. Later, J.A. Peace.
NJA for coming on the show and chopping it up, all things Stones at Jazz Fest, and uh, always repping for Jim Steaks on 4th and South on South Street, Philadelphia, best cheesesteak. Promoter 101, you heard the man. Anyway, uh, we're going to wrap it up. I want to say thanks to Jeff du- Jeffrey Dupuy. Jeffrey Dupuy, fantastic and uh, really heartwarming conversation. Always, my man J.A. for sliding through. Brings us to the uh, Vibe Junkie Jam of the Week. People be like, what's this Vibe Junkie about? Well, since we're on the topic of junkie stuff on this episode, I should let it be known that uh, the great philosopher Eamon Armstrong once explain that what we're all after in this life what are really really seeking this intangible thing vibe whether it's with a partner or with music or with a party or really anything is seeking a certain vibe and uh, that's really what is the battery in my back to do everything that I do Music, journalism, podcasting, surfing, dancing, connecting with my partner. I'm after that vibe. I am the vibe junkie. So the vibe junkie jam of the week is basically one tune every week that I pick out and lace you all up with because I feel like it's got to be played. It should be heard. Um, I've been playing a bunch of New Orleans music uh, this whole episode. You know, it's, uh, lead into Jeffrey Dupuy, I came with some classic James Booker, you're in the rebirth now, before that Dr. Claw opened up my, you know, opening diatribe, if you will, with the classic from The Meters, Ain't No Use, so I'm going to shift it over and take it back to my city, Philadelphia, and uh, we're going to go with Illadelph's Illust, you know how we do. The Legendary Roots Crew. Um, but the topic of the song I'm going to play, and the song's called Water, and it's from their 2002 LP entitled Phrenology. The song is originally slated for Black Thought's uh, shelved solo debut for MCA that never came out called Masterpiece Theater. Uh, and a couple of those songs uh, ended up on Phrenology. Uh, the next year and one of those songs is my all-time favorite root song thought at work um, a bastardized version of that song made it onto phrenology because they couldn't get the hey bulldog sample cleared uh, but i digress uh, another song on that record is called water and it is a letter from the roots and really from black thought to his uh, estranged homie and the former uh, fife to Thoughts Tip, uh, M. Illitant, uh, the man called Malik B., who was a great foil for Thought in the early Roots days when kind of would take a verse every uh, song or half a verse or even, you know, just be the sort of uh, send-dog at times to Thoughts Be Real. Um, but um, around the millennium, you know, after Things Fall Apart, the album... And the Roots you know, won a Grammy and kind of be on a different little plateau for a time. And, you know, it's 
not well documented, but understood that Malik B, uh, you know, got heavily involved with drugs, uh, addiction problems, other criminal behaviors, and unfortunate and uh, disturbing accusations uh, from women. Um, you just quick Google and you can find out what was said and what's happened and so forth. It's, um, I don't think he was ever convicted of... Uh, actually, I don't want to talk out of turn. You should look it up. The bottom line is Malik B. was in some shit and he wasn't really welcome um, in the Roots crew until he got his uh, life together a bit. And the song Water is a... Um, is basically a letter from Thought and the Roots to Malik B. Just kind of like, you know, learn how to walk straight, master your high. Um, there's just so many gems in there uh, that appeal to him to please save yourself and remember what we had and what you can be and who you are. Because Malik B. was a devout Muslim and a very, very, uh, you know, he, had a, he was a thinker and he was... They called him the M. Illitant for a reason, but he had lost sight of a lot of that. And uh, he came back for a couple verses on game theory and I think maybe one other appearance, but he never re rejoined the roots. I don't know what became of his struggle or addictions. And um, that said, you know, it's a cautionary tale. And given the tenor of what we discussed on this podcast, um, today and what I intend to revisit and empower everybody to, you know, take the necessary steps in their own lives or to help others around them, even if those steps are tough love. And that's what this song is, From the Roots, Water, uh, found on the album Phrenology. Um, the original song that was on Phrenology also has... Um, an accompanied sort of like abstract sound art that's uh there's a long explanation from Questlove what it's about and spike lee film that it mirrors a certain scene from but we're just going to play the song water from the roots for the vibe junkie jam of the week different kind of vibe for sure awesome song and uh words that needed to be spoken and continue to need to be heard and with that, we'll wrap it up on the Up for Life podcast, episode 10. I'm your host, B. Getz, and we'll see you next time. South Philly, North Side, Oakland, Texas, Georgia, Black people up Yo, worldwide, it's for my nigga. They say a record ain't nothing if it's not touching, gripping, draw you in closer, make you want to listen to it. And if you real ill at making music, the listener feel like he living through it. That's how my nigga do it. I met Slacks back in like 91 rapping. We went to Millersville to get away from gun clapping. It ain't last. I be in class dreaming about 50,000 fans up in the stands screaming out. Encore. Yo, I'm headed back to Philly. Nigga, you rolling with me? 
I'm trying to get busy We walk dogs that was off the chain A lot of times at the shows people hardly came I just took it in stride as part of the game But inside, people down with me started to change It was a couple things Low serum, low pills Instead of routing out on the road, you have a chill I know the way the pleasure feels I'm not judging But still I'm on a mission, yo, I'm not bugging I got fam that can't stop drugging They can't sleep They can't stick to one subject They can't eat It's people steady coming at me out in the street Like Greek, yo, what up with your peeps? It gets deep, nigga Yo, you need to walk straight, master, you're high Son, you missing out on what's passing, you why? I done seen the streets suck a lot of cats dry But not you and I, my nigga, we got to get Come on, over, over, the water Come on, over, over, the water Yeah, the water, yeah, the water Yo, we done been through many meals, a couple of deals We done shared clothes and wheels, killed mics and rails We done rocked shows abroad and slept on floors Trying to figure what the fuck we getting slept on for Or what we walking with the weapon for Waited by the gravity law You know it if you came up poor, my nigga Picture the bus up north You know we made her everything outlaws I made her, I'm far from a hater And I don't say I love you cause the way I feel is greater And Miller, you a poet, son, you a born creator And it's a probably dawn on you later It's in your nature Your lyrics all on your walls like they made a paper You got to follow where your talent take you You might fuck around, finally make it And that's real, but yo You need a wall straight, master, you're high Son, you missing out on what's passing, you why I done seen the streets suck a lot of gas dry But not you and I, my nigga, we got to get Come on, over, over the water Come on, over, over the water Come on, water, water I want you all to understand I come from South Philly And when I walk the street it's like a pharmacy They got all type of shit anybody could get And go from H to X to Lucy Cigarette for my ghetto legend Known for little shites running Cop codeine by the courts and keep coming Dumbing, just embracing the dope like it's a woman You burning both sides of the rope and just pulling Tugging in between Islam and straight thugging Laying every day around the way and doing nothing See them looking, shaking their head and start shrugging If they don't got a man Like mine, they got a cousin, hey yo. You better be a true friend to him before the shit put an end to him, or give a pen to him, or lock him in the studio with a mic. Cause on a real, it might save his life. Keep telling him, yo, you need to walk straight, master. Yeah, so you missing out on what's passing. You are, I done seen the streets suck a lot of cats dry, but not you and I, my nigga. We got to get come on over, over the water, come on over, over the water, come on, water. Yo, you need the wall straight, master, you're high So you missing out on what's passing you by I done seen the streets suck a lot of cats dry But not you or I, my nigga, we got to get Come on, over, over the water Come on, over, over the water Come on, water